Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. My name is Ruark. I'm your host. Joined today once again by our panel. Say hello, panel. Yeah. Hello, hello panel. panel. Our panel of newbies today, we've got David. Hey, all. Greg. Hey, hello. Siobhan. Hey, everybody. DW. Good night, mate. And Samaria. Sup, y'all. And Axel, unable to join us this time around, uh, but uh, hopefully Axel will be with us again next time. Um, and DW, you uh, weren't able to make the show last time, and I understand uh, you've got some exciting new things that you've been releasing lately. You want to tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I was, I was sad I couldn't miss it, but I've been working on some projects where uh, we've got a new season of Beyblade coming out on uh, um Disney XD and uh, a couple of new mobile app games uh, like Castle Craft that came out and stuff and just kind of took my schedule by storm last week. And uh, what are you doing with those? I do voices on them. So uh, in Beyblade, uh, all of the matches that get announced uh, of the tops, I'm the announcer for all of the official ones. Uh, his name's Hanami. And then for Castlecraft, if you play and get the main commander, Leon, I'm the voice of Leon, as well as a few of the other characters in the game. So there you go. If you want to hear what DW's been up to, go check out uh, Castlecraft and Beyblade playing on uh, Disney XD. Uh, now getting right into our episode, uh, episode eight, The Eye of the World. This was our season finale. Uh, this was written by our showrunner, Rafe Judkins, and directed by uh, Kieran Donnelly again. And our opening scene, our cold open, uh, is taking place in the Age of Legends. And uh, we know it was in the Age of Legends because everybody is speaking the old tongue. And the, and the card said, 3,000 years ago. <laughs> and uh, we meet uh, Luz Theron and uh, Latra, and uh, they... They have a little discussion there in the nursery. Uh, I just wanted to see what you guys all picked up from that discussion they had. Well. There was a lot. Yeah. One thing I did notice, thanks to Amazon X-Ray, uh, Latra um, was referred to as the Tamerlan seat. Yes. Not the Amerlin seat, the Tamerlan seat. Mm -hmm. What happened to that T 3,000 years ago? I'm thinking hmm, it was a translation it's just a translation error. change. I was just going to say, maybe it's because uh, there are no male members of the Aes Sedai, so maybe the translation is slightly different. That or there's a male version of the Amarillan seat, and they make decisions together, too. And so there's... But she was the Tamerlan seat, and unless it's like, okay, with Tamerlan, is that a duet, a duo, a co-seat? Don't know. Well, I kept I, um... going back and forth on whether or not she was uh, related to the baby. And it wasn't mm. until she made the comment toward the end about just, I'm here telling an old friend. It's like, okay, they're not, there's no romantic relationship here, but it seemed kind of odd that they show him in the nursery and her just chatting with him in the nursery so casually where the mother's not in the picture. And so my main thought was kind of, where's the mom? I am. Um, yeah. My girlfriend and I, we actually thought that they were married and it wasn't until my second or third watch through where I was like, mm, no, I don't think they are. But I do think they go way back. Like maybe they grew up together. Um, what stuck out to me um, before the big reveal was that they're in black and white, which I felt was a really 
was a bit on the nose, but I did like the juxtaposition about, you know, what's going to happen with male Aes Sedai, well, male channelers mm-hmm. just in general, um, and women. And um thought that was, I mean, yes, it was obvious, but I, I liked it. Um, I also, I picked up that there is still a difference between male and female Aes Sedai. And so the way that Latra was talking was in how they were both talking to each other, where it seemed like female Aes Sedai have their own way of governing themselves and male Aes Sedai do as well. And and then later on, they kind of meet together and see what happens. But I don't get the feeling that, or at least maybe this is just because of what was happening at the time. But I didn't get the feeling that, you know, they're all living together in the White Tower and functioning as one. And there's no gender difference between who does what. Hmm. Maybe there's a Black Tower a thousand years ago. <laughs> I also noticed oh, or maybe the opposite <laughs> that a black hole. they called her the flame the same as they call the current Amarillo seat, the flame, but that was the only title she had. The Amarillo seat had like mm-hmm. multiple, multiple different titles. So I was wondering if maybe at that point in time, the Tamerlin seat only kind of had one piece of the governance, but other people had parts of that title that now the Amarillo seat has everything of. Yeah. Interesting, interesting ideas. DW. One of the things I noticed that was I, I found interesting was um, that his claim that or her concern that he was going to go and all this bad was going to happen, her prediction turned out to be true. But on the other side of it, he seemed convinced that if they had joined him, if the if the female Aes Sedai had also come, that there wouldn't have been the danger for the source of magic, that they would have been able to just defeat him. And so it pr- brings that interesting like. Okay, they hedged their bet. They stayed behind and to clean up the mess that was going to be created. But his stance was there wouldn't be a mess if you just come along. And it was it's an interesting conundrum to create. Yeah, I was actually wondering if this was a depiction of what happened or somebody else's retelling of it, because at one point she refers to him as the dragon reborn, but he's not reborn yet. He did also have the pin, but I believe from the lore, the dragon is reborn every age. Is that correct, Rook? See, I thought he was the original dragon. The, so this is a point of contention um, with with the book readers uh, watching the show right now. Um, Luz Theron in the books is just called the dragon. He is the original dragon. Um, and then in the next age, the dragon is reborn. Um but they also kind of claim that the dragon comes every age and this this battle has to happen over and over. It just happens, you know, thousands of upon thousands of times over eons as as the wheel turns kind of thing. So that person might not be named dragon every time, but it is the same person. Gotcha. Um, so some people who read the books are a little upset that they called him the dragon reborn. I think that they just did that to help explain it to new new watchers you know that this is the same person which i don't think was entirely necessary but you know hey they did it and frankly that might just be a translation error from for the people translating from old tongue to the the uh subtitles on our screen so you know maybe they didn't screw it up damn google translate 
<laughs> the Dark One kind of um, insinuates that he's not the first dragon. When we talk to him later, yeah. he he uses the name Luz Theron, but he also states that Luz Theron wasn't necessarily the first, that it's happened over and over and over again. Right. Anything else that you, that you guys picked up in that scene? Or love the sci-fi cityscape. Other than Wakanda? Oh, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> this is the first part of the series that has made me feel like this is potentially set in Earth's future. Because like some of some of what they did mm. seemed to be like a future for us and then being able to tell the aftermath of that future falling apart, which is an interesting thought. I, I, I th- That city felt like it could have existed on Earth. So mm. we're in the first age? I screamed and I was mad. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I was very mad because, you know, Latra had it right on the money. She was so correct, you know, that he and the rest were going to hit the reset button and throw them back in progress. And I just also I had this thought because there's this one post that's been running around about how, you know, humans, you know, homo homo sapiens have existed for 300,000 years, but we only have record of about five of those. And I was like, you know what? We have no evidence that that wasn't, you know, our own past at some point. And then it got, you know, destroyed. And now we had to start from scratch, too. I want flying mm. cars. I- <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, oh I wanted to Back stay. Back to the Future but- made promises. It has not kept up. <laughs> no, no, it has not. Okay. The only one we got is Biff. You know. <laughs> I do find it really amusing that the the international symbol for a futuristic utopia is the flying car. Like, yes, yeah. they can't figure out how to give you a depiction of world peace or an end to hunger <laughs> or you know true social equality. But if we throw some flying cards in there, the people will get it. <laughs> flying cars and bubble domes, and and you know that everything's okay. But flying cards are also the one that, while they seem right around the corner, are probably a far distance off just because of the physics. So it's something you can throw in there and it's still futuristic in 20 years. Yeah. Whereas how many times they like would do this is 1985 and you're like, yeah, they had that the next year. <laughs> the Star Trek David, you have something. Yeah. What was kind of blowing my mind because I'm the sci fi nerd was. Every sci-fi I've had in the past, those flying cars were built because of technology had advanced. And now I'm wondering, like, is is that technology that's flying those cars or is it the magic of the universe that's flying those cars? Mm. Because it could be mm. either. Yeah. And is magic just technology we don't understand? Absolutely. I mean, that's happened exactly. in Legend of Korra, where they get electricity, but it's powered by firebenders. Spoiler alert. I know you haven't gotten that far yet. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have. I finished the series. Already? Oh, I'm gosh. not there yet. I haven't even started it. You've already ruined it for Surprise. me. <laughs> that was the only thing worth knowing about. Don't watch the series unless now that that's been ruined. Please. <laughs> okay, that's the next show I'm going to have to watch. Yeah, well, one one of the things, one one of the other things was the, the the design of the skyscrapers. You could tell that there was an evolution. Mm-hmm. You could tell that there was some areas there was, looked like a, an old coliseum, very yeah. Roman looking. Then you had some, you know, New York size skyscrapers. Then you yeah. had some Dubai. Yeah. yeah, you could tell this was a a, a city built over time. As yeah. opposed to built as a monolith, yeah, and and not rebuilt, not yeah. torn down and rebuilt, but just added onto, which is a cool touch. And and Samaria, I'm glad to hear that you 
like yelled and screamed because I, I screamed like I, I, the noise that came out of me, I, I don't even know where it came from. But I, I squealed. <laughs> I really squealed because when they did that pan shot through that window, that was like exactly how I visualized the age of legends in my head. When I, was I love this like, for you. Like to a T that was, and, and like, I, I just squealed so hard because they had matched my internal vision so well. And yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you had that, that experience even without the, the relation to the source material. I couldn't get to the pause button fast enough to, to check yeah. that out. It was gorgeous great and there was so much design. going on in there yeah. yes just just the design of it was beautiful their production design was exquisite it was fantastic so moving on we get to our opening credits uh we've said all we need to say about the opening credits at this point um and then our first scene we are in the blight with moraine and rand um, and they stumble across a mycelial Shinaran, uh, who's just sitting there hanging out under a tree. Um, Rand's like, uh, what's, what's with this guy in the mushrooms? And Maureen explains about, uh, Shinaran boys and being stupid and daring each other to go spend a night in the blight type thing. And, uh, you know, not a whole lot of them survive. Uh, any thoughts on this thing? Well, she said young men in way over their heads. And then she gives Rand a stare of death right after saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking yeah, at my you, kid. Like, oh, I like picked him. up that warning. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing I thought of was, I guess the, the challenge is to just sleep. Like there's nothing that necessarily attacks you other than the blight itself. Yeah. which takes you in your sleep and then you just never come out of it, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I would kind of think it's like walking into a stomach of something like, you know, you're, you know, you're just getting digested slowly the whole time you're there, you know, Sarlacc pit. Through a Sarlacc pit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Sarlacc pit. Uh, so our next scene, we're in Faldara uh, with Perrin and Egwene and uh, Egwene is panic packing, trying to get all of their stuff together so that they can chase off after, after Rand and, and Moraine and uh, Perrin being Perrin is trying to talk her down and telling her, you know, you need to take a minute. You need to think we have to think this through. We can't just act. Um, and Egwene says, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm just panicking. Look, I, I, I love Rand so much and I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and Perrin says, yeah, I love Rand too. And, and we need to, but there's nothing we can do if we chase after him. Uh, what are we thinking this scene? It's a nice friend, another nice friendship moment. Yeah. I, I noticed, and it just felt a little odd. Like there was that, just that brief moment of Egwene seemed like she was expressing romantic love. And then he said it. And it wasn't that I, I felt odd for him other than her, like kind of a look from her, like, yeah, but not in the same way. <laughs> so uh, our next scene, we're in the blight. Uh, we've got Moraine and Rand again. They, stop to take a rest and uh, they see these seven towers of Malkir. Um, and Rand says, it looks like it's been swallowed up for over a thousand years. And Moraine says, no, it's been like 40 years at the most. Um, the blight honestly used to just be about a mile or two from Tarwin or might blight used to be miles from Tarwin's gap. Now it's much closer. Uh, the dark one's obviously gaining strength. Um, and Rand, seeing the Towers of Malkir and knowing that's where Lan is from, says, uh, was, was it hard to leave Lan behind? And uh, 
Lorraine takes that moment to say, uh, shut up and put some food in your mutton hole, sheep herder, so words stop coming out of you. <laughs> uh, what are we thinking? I was thinking it's creepy that the blight's not only creeping on things, but it's moving things. Um, you know, I sat around. I was like, okay, what do you what do you mean by miles? It was it closer or farther away? But either way, that that is first of all, that's very strong for somebody in prison to be able to mm-hmm. do to still have that effect on a landscape. Um, and you know, then I was like, ooh, what about what about the fortress? Yikes! Like, can you, you can maybe fight the blight, but can you fight a whole city that's coming through on the blight? What what do you do? I guess you pack up and go. Now, I I, I think you're uh, you're thinking that the whole city has moved, but I think it just means that the blight has moved to take over the city. So I think the city's still where it was, but the blight has moved past it onto mm. onto the the next town. That's, that's kind of what I got out of it. If you're getting that it moved the city, that would be awesome. <laughs> but I don't know if that's what it's doing. You know, I'm going to go go ahead and go with it either way. I like the idea of the bike moving cities around. That sounds awesome. Yeah. It would be, I, I kind of can see that in a sense of like when some plants grow and they push over fences or they push over. Like this one just pushed a whole city this way. Yeah. yeah. Or right underneath so how it. how does one fight the blight? If the blight is a form of rot, like a form of contamination, how, like I, fending off trollocs you do with swords and arrows. How do you fight mm-hmm. off the soil becoming poisoned. Yeah, that's a great question. Isopropyl alcohol. I was about Salt to say everything. I would set it on fire. <laughs> Hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, yeah, fire, fire would work. Mm. There you go. So we jump back to Faldara. Uh, we've got Lan and Nynaeve. Um, and Nynaeve is telling Lan that it wasn't him that she was tracking when she tracked them earlier. It was Moraine. Uh, she says Moraine has a tell and she'll show him how to find it. I wanted to know about that. What was it? Was it like some sort of trail of magic dust left behind? Could be though, because Lan couldn't use that, right? It has to be something physical. I was also saying, I also had the thought that it can't be the magic because then she would be able to see it, but he wouldn't since women can see what the magic is for women and men can see what the magic is for men, but not, crossing gender from what I understand for the, for the yeah. series. So and we also it know it's magical. not the wind. That's true. It's That's not true. Because she says later she can't hear the wind now. Well, yeah, but she could back when she first tracked her down. And we can't expect Lan to hear the wind either. Yeah. I don't true. know that he's gone through the training to to hear the wind. So she, she's, she's some kind of like genius tracker and I want to know what it is. She keeps eating pistachios and leaving shells behind. <laughs> <laughs> tea bags Lan's allergic so he shoes. doesn't know yeah <laughs> so i'll give you a little bit of background on that um in the books uh she is uh her father uh who raised her until she went off to to be with the other wisdom um to learn the, the craft of wisdomness uh her father was a a hunter and a trapper and and taught her the ways of hunting and trapping and tracking and she is in many ways even better than warders at doing such things. The interesting thing that that poses, though, is that means that Lan moves somewhat difficult, more difficultly to track than does uh, Moraine. Right. Because well, she was able to track Moraine, but not able to track Lan. So if it's something tracking able, wise. She was able to track him in town. 
when he was going to visit his family friends. But well, well he also never quite got out of eyeshot of her either. That, that, yeah. that I didn't seem surprised. That was, he knew that, she was that's following. true. That's true. That was a little more stalking than tracking. <laughs> yeah. They even mentioned that in the show. It's like, you know, I wasn't tracking you. I was following you. Or, or Lance says something to that effect. Yeah, so uh, he asks her why she would do that, why she would send him away from her, and she says, look, just bring back Rand. Um, and then we we get uh, um, a, some more of the love story between these two, and, and uh, Lan tells her that she's remarkable, and she implies that she might go to the White Tower to train because wisdoms don't wed, but maybe not wisdoms do wed, or something to that effect. Um, and Lan busts out with a line here, and this line is straight from the books. And this line, this is one that that a lot of the the book readers were waiting for. Um, he says, "I will hate the man you choose because he he is not me, and I will love him if he makes you smile. You are as beautiful as the sunrise. You are as fierce as a warrior. You are a lioness." And all I can say is is that they were cooking and, and chopping onions and then the room got all dusty and, and Definitely. then we got on to our next scene. Shakespeare was better in the old tongue. It just was. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was this was really beautifully written. I could I could tell that it was probably something straight out of the books because of how poetically that was written. There was a mm-hmm. lot of effort spent on just that phrasing. And not to say that that TV writers don't take that kind of time with dialogue. But this felt so fit to the moment that it felt like it had to be pulled from something that had a little bit more of that time spent on it, like a novel. Yeah, I did notice in the X-ray it said that it was taken from the book, but it was from a different, a different place, a different yes. scene. So, uh, is this a scene that has happened before or has not happened yet? In um, it, it, it's a scene that has not happened yet. It, it, it's just another scene between Lan and Nynaeve. Um, they're just, you know, kind of shuffling around, you know, they're, they're throwing love letters from one scene at a different scene just to, to get them more out in the open, I guess. So, okay. yeah. Uh, any more, uh, observations on, on this interaction? Yeah. I was kind of wondering the meaning behind it. Like Lan almost still thinks he's going to die in this setup, but doesn't think Nynaeve's going to die. So that's maybe one reason why he's assuming that she's going to have another person. Mm. Um, I think he's also feeling he's still connected to Moraine. Yeah. That too, a little bit. It, I just, I was kind of interested in the meaning behind him already assuming that there was going to be somebody besides himself. I I took, that is because he is already bonded to a living Aes Sedai. I mean, we've seen how difficult it is for a warder to even consider the possibility of moving to a new Aes Sedai when his dies. It would seem to me that it would be impossible if she's still alive. And I suppose the possibility of her presumed warder once she becomes an Aes Sedai falling in love for the same reason. Like with her, it would probably be easier to be buried to a civilian than somebody else in the tower. But he may get that chance yet. 
This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some awesome art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like The Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. If you're a fan of fantasy, be sure to check out Watch Party's Lord of the Rings podcast. Join Michael and Jen as they delve too greedily and too deep into Tolkien's legendarium in anticipation of Amazon's big-budget adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. They go deep into prior adaptations like Peter Jackson's film trilogies and the 1977 animated adaptation of The Hobbit, and discuss leaks, lore, and potential plot lines for the upcoming show. Whether you're a diehard fan looking for serious analysis or a new fan looking to get up to speed, Watch Party Lord of the Rings is for you. Watch Party Lord of the Rings, part of the Watch Party Podcasting Network. So moving on to our next scene, uh, we are back in the blight. We've got Moraine and and Rand. Um, And Rand wakes up and uh, the blight is is holding hands with him. Isn't, Isn't that nice of the blight? Um, and Moraine asks him what he was dreaming, um, because dreams have great meaning, especially this close to the dark one. Rand says, well, the dream was of the dark one. And, uh, then we hear knock, knock. Moraine says, who's there? Uh, interrupting sword. Moraine says, interrupting sword. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, our own old friend Flameface is back. I accidentally hit pause and it told me the name of the flame face. Oh, in the x-ray. As yeah. Ishmael. Yeah. Ishmael, so, yes. yes. who's the guy who turned I him in. That. So I saw yes. that on accident and went, oh, well, I've been ruined. Now I know who's in all the dreams. But now, so if it was if it was Ishmael along, then that made sense. But now we see the flame face is a different flame face or has always been the dark one. Then that means that the first one wasn't Ishmael. And so I don't know if that was done as a red herring or what. But it means it wasn't ruined for me because that's what I was kind of. It, it threw me for a loop at that moment. See, I saw now that I just too. got Ishmael all along going through my head. <laughs> I, I saw that too. That the the when he took his human form, the character's name was Ishmael, and Ishmael is mentioned by um, the woman from the the inn. The, the first time they run into dark friends, uh, what's Dana. her name? Yeah, it's the name Dana. of the person who turned him in. Yeah. That's true. So that that's what I thought was showing up in all the dreams was the person who turned in the dragon the last time around. But if it was the dark one himself, unless somehow the dark one and Ishmael are the same person in some weird, you know, duality. I was assuming that the Dark Lord was just taking on this face because he himself is not human, but it is not human. But um, he can take on a human face to interact with people. Or this is Ishmael. And the only reason why we think it's the dark one is because Moraine says that it's the dark one. However, how would she know what the dark one looks like? Yeah, maybe she's just assuming. However, he takes an arrow to his flaming face and sucks it in. So that may be a hint, too. (laughs) In the dream, he takes an arrow. We didn't know it's a dream at this point. I I have in my notes. 
police say this is a dream? It's better than a dream. <laughs> I, so, oh, that's what... I did note that the not dream when he woke up, the blight had not nearly taken as much of his hand as yeah. it had in the dream version. Yeah, but the beats Where were also like, yeah, follows like the same narrative mm-hmm. up until the point where Moraine takes the the sword, which then tells me, okay, now either the one who's projecting the dream or Rand can see glimpses of the future because that hasn't happened yet. And it follows the exact same narrative. Dreams can be prophetic. Or maybe it's just kind of showing out of time because it's happening at the same time. And there's no real way to show that. Uh, So, you know, just showing it happening once and then showing it happening again, but not necessarily that it's happening the second time. It's just the perspective has switched. The time has gone back. So you can actually see what's happening in that perspective. There's a glitch in the matrix. Right, right. It, it's yeah, the black cat flickers and it's deja vu. Whoa. So uh old flame face is, is talking to him with his human skin now, and he says, uh, you look nothing like him, but still you're him. I can see it in your eyes. And uh, so he, I guess that's confirmation. Is that confirmation that uh you, you said we would know who the who who the dragon reborn is by the end of the season. Do we now know? Do you know? Do you think you know? <laughs> Nothing but questions you were from to the tell remarks. Us. The, show was su- the show was supposed to tell you. Did it though? Yeah, did it? I don't know, did it? God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so enjoying this torture just a little too much. Okay. Uh, I'll go ahead and ask you guys uh, do you want this answer? No. No. Nope. Okay. Nope. Then I'm not going to say anything. Mm. Okay. All right. I'll suffer in silence. Greg, Greg will take this offline. <laughs> no, I won't suffer in silence. I will share my suffering with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, he, as I was saying, he he said, uh, "You're you're him. You you're you don't look the same, but you're him. I can see it in your eyes." Uh, and he keeps calling him Luz Theron. And uh, starts questioning uh, the fact that he believes that Tam was his his father, and, and he's like, "You really think that that sheep herder was your father?" Um, which kind of pissed off Rand a little bit, and uh, Rand realizes that he can just seppuku his way out of this dream. So uh, he does, and when he wakes up, he ends up having, as we were already saying, the same conversation all over with Moraine, um, and he says uh, he didn't believe a word of what the, the Dark One told him. It's an inception. Yeah. dream within a dream no however though just thinking about what you were saying while he says that he sees him in his eyes that doesn't necessarily rule out the idea that all five of them are just because he recognizes him in the one doesn't mean that he's not in the other four who this guy's not currently seeing ultron mm-hmm. where he lives it's, so it's, it's potential there's still that potential of either or but i do yeah. think that rand is at least part of the the voltron build yeah, later on they do say, you know, he's got a role. Everyone has a role to play. So, and if this is Ishmael, he may not know who he's looking at. Because if the dark one said, "Hey, somebody's going to show up to the eye of the world. That person will be the the dragon reborn. Here's what you tell this dragon reborn because I've seen everything." If it is Ishmael, he may not know 
what he's looking at. He may just be regurgitating what the Dark One is saying. And so it may not be that he sees Lucerne in Rand. Rather, he sees a person show up who is powerful and they can tell he's powerful. But that may not mean that he knows that it's the Dragon Reborn. Yeah. Since you guys have latched onto this uh, Ishamael thing, which is actually the the proper way it's spelled and pronounced is Ishamael. I don't know why they spelled it Ishmael in the X-ray uh, info. Um, there is a character named Ishmael, Ishamael, excuse me. Um, Call him Ishmael. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to acknowledge that joke. It was so bad. Oh, continuing on. on. <laughs> okay. Um, as you, you have already figured out, uh, Ishamael is one of the Forsaken, uh, as, as the, um, uh, uh what was her name, uh, in Breen Spring and she brought him up. Uh, yeah, she, uh, she brought him up and, and he was kind of her master. And then we actually heard about, uh, Ishamael one other time. And that was when Steppen, uh, had his, his little, uh, Forsaken action figures out that he was, uh writing writing some prayer incense and uh when they asked uh who who are you uh trying to ward off tonight and he said ashamayel father of lies Mm. that was that was the uh two mentions of ashamayel that we've had so far since you 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 guys would not leave that alone i figured i i would uh, bring that back into your memory you know i picked up on them both yeah, I, I, I remember that they were mentioned. You know, the, the, the name was mentioned. I wasn't exactly sure where, but yeah, you are yeah. right. So moving on, uh, Rand asks Moraine, what's the plan? And Moraine's like, well, here, I've got this saw angry all just, uh, you know, do some side sidening stuff, I guess, with it. Um, and Rand is like, oh yeah, you were doing all this training with Egwene. You probably thought it was Egwene and, and now you're stuck with me. Right. And she pretty much kind of, yeah. And he says, yeah, it's okay. I, I thought it was her too. So <laughs> I was wondering if that conversation was a hint that Rand was starting to tap into the power already because he said, you thought it was Egwene. You taught her how to channel as if he'd just realized that you took her to meet the Amaranth seat. She did tell him that when his life was on the line that he would be able to channel, but he had never learned it. So that was, you know, that was, that was probably one of the things where it's like, you never taught me to channel. Uh, you just tell me now that, you know, I'll only be able to do it when the shit is hitting the fan. So you never thought it was me in the first place. Well, but and the main reason that she even gives there is the fact that she could train, if it had been Egwene, she could have trained her all the way up to the point of going to the world, eye of the world. But with him, any training she gives him is starting him down the madness path. So she has to be careful on any amount that he spends touching the source because the madness is not far behind. And I know we're going to get to this in a bit, but when you see him first channel, he it's all white for the first while and mm-hmm. then the black comes in it, the, yeah. the madness joined but he had a short period of time how quickly would it have already been there if he was uh channeling and practicing with moraine yeah because we saw it the last time we've seen a male channeler how quickly the black shows up um and so we have to, like we had a fair bit of time before yeah. you know yeah. the madness creeped in for brand so yeah, I, like I wonder if every male channeler is different and how quickly they get mad. Um, is it like based on their like physiology or you know any their 
psychological state to start with anyway. Um, well, he did have those couple of times where he did channel, you know, apparently breaking down the door, uh, eating the trollic in the ways, you know, so he has done it before, but I think it was like so unconscious that he didn't, you know, he, he didn't realize it was happening. And uh, maybe you have to be aware that you're doing it before the madness takes hold. Oh, maybe. Could be. I don't know. Curious. Well, there was black in, in it, though, when in his visions of channeling, was there's there? black in his magic. Yes. I didn't think there was. Okay. There, there, there was when he channeled in the ways, his memory of it, there was uh, black in mixed with the, the channeling. Yeah, I didn't catch that. I thought I thought it was all all white and nice magic. Uh, continuing on, we, we're back at Faldara. Uh, we've got Egwene and Nynaeve, and Nynaeve is saying that she hasn't been able to hear the wind since uh, since she started channeling. Um, she asks Egwene if Egwene can hear anything. Egwene listens to the wind for a minute and says, uh, well, it, it sounds like it did on winter night, but about a thousand times worse. Uh, any Any thoughts on this? The wind doesn't like Trollocs. <laughs> I, I think the Trollocs maybe make the wind smell funny is, is my thought. Yeah, I'd believe it. I'd believe it. They, they look like they have a little, a little ripeness, a little yeah. font to them. Especially the goat Trollocs. I wonder if it's like an uneasiness on the breeze kind of thing. Yeah, it's stronger because it's more immediate. Yep. yep. Warm smell of Kalidas rising up through the air. What's inter- in, in RPG, there was an interesting thing they did to try and explain. Sorry, in, in a role-playing game, um, World of Darkness, they did an interesting thing trying to explain Frankenstein and how mobs get created. And the idea was that a Frankenstein monster being unnatural has a odd effect on people. It feels unnatural near you. And when you get multiple people near each other all sharing that effect, that's how you get mobs with porch- pitch- pitchforks and torches. And the fact that it like compounds on itself. So like if there's an uneasiness and it's just one, that's one thing. But when it gets to be a lot of that uneasiness spread out over how many Trollocs and that all flowing over the wind and yeah, it mm. screams. That could explain a f- few things about the past few years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> valid, valid. Uh, so back to our storyline, uh, we've got uh, Egwene and Nynaeve and Perrin with Loyal and they're showing up at Min's Bar. Um, and they, they go in and ask man, what did you see with Rand? And she's like, Lay, look, sorry, I've got patience here, confidentiality. I'm not talking about what I see with anybody else. And they're just like, well, can you tell us if he'll be all right? And she responds and say, I'll just say that everything I see comes through, comes true eventually, which I was screaming at my TV. Yeah, but you didn't actually answer their question. <laughs> Does she she ever? There's a lot of that going around. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Can't get a straight answer out of anybody. Selective answering. Except Loyal. He's quite good at straight answers. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So uh, the straight but slow answers. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you mean. My answer, answer does not have a straight or bend to it. My answer is just very clear and to the point. <laughs> I love professors like Loyal. Words do not bend. Letters do. <laughs> So uh, next, Min uh, looks around the room and she sees a few people in the room kind of falling over, looking like they're dying. Um, And then we hear a battle horn. I think we can put uh, two and two together here and get three. 
Yeah, but we also one of the interesting things about that whole like the the proselytization, um, the the fact that the the soldiers or the the fighters all there were being attacked by Trollocs, but the women were having their eyes burnt out. And it was an interesting, like, okay, wait, something else is going to go on. And eventually we find out what, but it was, it was an interesting, like, there's something different happening here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I figured, I mean, going back to the story of, uh, Manetherin with the, the queen of Manetherin burning herself out, touching the source, I figured that had something to do with it. Some sort of yeah. last ditch defense thing. Uh, but I was like, why is my evil Bernie? That's not good. <laughs> So we get a quick scene back in the Blight um, where Moraine and Rand also realize that uh, the Trollocs are on their way and they realize that Faldara is boned. And that's pretty much the whole scene. Uh, moving on, we're back at Faldara and we've got uh, Agomar and Amalisa. Um, and Agomar is uh, saying there were reports of 60 fades driving the army, which means five to 10,000 Trollocs and more are coming out of the Blight as we watch. Uh, to which Uno swears. Um, and uh, uh oh, turns out that the ropes on the drawbridges were also cut. Looks like we've got dark friends in the city. Uh, maybe we should have fumigated last winter. <laughs> um, Those darn dark friends. You know, when you see the dark friend droppings, you know there are dark friends in the walls. <laughs> you know what they say if you see one, that means there's, you know, a dozen that you don't see. They all scatter as soon as you turn on the light. Yeah. <laughs> They're in the walls. So uh, Egomar then uh, says, look, I'm going to take my personal guard. I'm going to go out, support the gap. Um, sons of Shinar, you guys know what to do. Um, I've decided that that is the name for uh, Egomar's little uh, band of dudes there that all wear the motorcycle vests. So, Does Shinar translate to anarchy in the old tongue? Possibly. <laughs> Uh, so now we're back at the Eye of the World. We've got Moraine and Rand, um, and they they arrive at the Eye of the World itself. Um, and it, to me, looks like a, a step well, like you would see in India. And, yes. And I, I thought that was amazing. I, I, I was this, exactly reminded, too. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the opposite of a white tower. It's a black hole. Oh, Ooh. it's also, if you'll notice, it's a similar stair structure to the wall itself. When they show the backside of the wall and the horses are riding the thing, it has yeah. the same stair structure as the well does. Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Built by the same people at some point in the history. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Rand uh, looks around and says, uh, I know this place. Um, and... Also, Moraine, you should stay up here. You don't need to die because I know that whoever goes down there is going to die. And Moraine just kind of walks past him and starts walking down the well. It's her job. She knows. Stubborn. She knows that she's got to do what she's got. You know, things that got to get done, got to get done. But it was also very much Rand to be the like, let me protect you. I will. I will. I who have never channeled or done anything in the world will go handle the dark one all on my own. You so, live. So, so Rand uh, tipped his fedora and, and kissed her hand, said, my lady, I'll, I'll take care of this for you. Pretty much. Cute, pretty much. And yeah. I'm glad she just kind of looked at him as he kissed her hand and walked right past. I thought it was cute that he thought that, you know, just because she's not literally in the well, well, it's not a well, that she would escape the fate of death. Like, baby, she's already, she is right there on top of it. Like, you know, if you go yeah. down, he's going to pull her down and, you know, obliterate her too. 
Exactly. It's like, what, what good would that do? You're there. It says when you get to the eye of the world, not when you get to the bottom floor of the eye of the world. It also, it's when you get to the eye of the world. Well, I also kind of feel like he should have been a little suspicious. If he was quicker on it, he should have known that part of the reason he, she's going is to make sure he chooses correctly. Like he should know there's a knife at his throat before there's a knife at his throat. Yeah, he didn't seem too swift on the uptake on that. Yeah. On several things, that one included. Yeah, he, true, he's true, not especially the most that one. Worldly dragon. That's the worldly dragon. That just stuff all went to nine Takes him a while. <laughs> so uh, our next scene, we're back in the blight still. Uh, this one's with Lan. He's tracking them down, and uh, he's at their campsite near the uh, Seven Towers of Malkir, and he. Looks up and sees the Seven Towers of Malkir, and his stony face gets even stonier faced. And that was a brilliant expression moment. That was like you could read it so much going on in his face in that moment, knowing what those towers meant to him. Uh, So now we're back at Faldara, um, and we've got Agamar and Amalisa. They're getting ready for for the big battle, um, and they're putting on their armor. Um, I love this scene. Oh, this was fantastic. Yeah, uh, y'all said you had some thoughts about this scene, so I'm just going to set back and let you guys uh, explore your thoughts a minute. Sure, sure. Yeah, the first thing that I I caught on that was, you know, uh, pointing out the – Emilisa pointing out the armor that has never failed, the armor that has saved the city that has never fallen. And, of course, you know, Agamar with his terminal case of rugged individualism has to say, no, I'm wearing mine. And uh, as soon as that happened, I knew it's like, yeah, Annalise is going to be wearing this. <laughs> I, had, I had a slightly different take on that in that I know he knew he was doomed and he wanted her to be safe and to have the armor. I knew I knew that she was going to end up wearing the armor. And I think he was leaving it behind in a. I'm going to go die because this is not going to work. And I'm leaving you the thing that's going to help you protect the city. I didn't get that selflessness out of him. Hmm. I got the the, I did when his story switched. I did when it, because he he starts off, no, no, we're going to win. We're going to win. He's like, oh, you were totally not going to win. We're totally, we're totally dead. I'm wearing this armor so you can keep that one. But no, we're going to go win. (laughs) The bravado came for I could kind of see that, but also it's like he didn't have to go there. You know, Um, there there are lots of things that he could have done with the armor, but I think he's so intent on his own way. And, you know, the the same thing that happened whenever Moraine walked into the, you know, to the, the, the chambers and he he thought he knew exactly what she was there for and pontificated about all of this ah now we don't need you because of this and it's be told out turned out to be totally wrong and yeah he did acknowledge that but it's still an essence of his character that he's right yeah. and he's going to do things his way you know I the terminal it. case of rugged individualism uh just just screams off of this guy yeah, I read it as he didn't want to wear it because he's like, I have my own. He wanted to be his own person. But I also mm-hmm. read it as he wanted to be his own person and he didn't want to sully the legacy of that armor by losing in it, which he knew Being he was going the first to do. One to go oh, down. Yeah. Yeah. But I, don't I picked think, up on that. Like, I don't there think his sister okay. putting it on was even a factor in his mind. Like once he like walked away and 
Amalisa looked at it. I was like, oh, she knows. She's like, you know what? What he can't, what he won't do, I'm going to do it. Um, yeah, it was Chekhov's armor as soon as she pointed I, it out. He, he said no. He was too much in his own head and his own, like, emotions to worry about what sis was up to. So I have a lot of feelings about this scene. <laughs> um, and I think, so when I first watched this entire episode, I wasn't sure how I felt about it. It felt like the pacing was really strange. You have this increasing tension where the changes from from person to person, from scene to scene are getting faster and faster. You have these incredibly energetic battle scenes that just go by in a flash. And then right in the exact center of the episode, you have this very long, comparatively long scene where two people are just talking. And when I went back and and looked at it again, I kind of realized, okay, so the action scenes are going fast but the scenes that are longer are the ones where something that is actually Im- more important is happening. And this entire scene with him conversing with his sister, there's a point where he drops the, the kind of mighty warrior facade and says, you were absolutely right. You were correct. We should have asked for help sooner. And you can see the look on her face. This is not something he's ever done before. He's never apologized for anything in his life. And he says, we are going to die here. This is my job. My job is to be a speed bump so that we lose this battle, but the war is won. And that I I saw this scene as incredibly important because it's it very much directly addresses the idea of sacrifice. Everybody in all the major scenes in this episode center around self-sacrifice of some kind or another. And that's mm-hmm. kind of like the one where it's it's laid out in black and white. We are giving up our lives so that the rest of the world can survive, hopefully. We don't even know if it's ac- they're actually going to, but we're going to do our best to make sure that they do. And then at the very end of the scene, they do that lovely little heart tap, mm-hmm. which I adored. Um, so like after Black Panther came out, everybody was crossing their arms and doing Wakanda forever. And that to me mm-hmm. is like the equivalent gesture. This is... This is how we show our loyalty and respect for each other. We do this little heart tap. I just loved that. I thought it was the perfect way to end that scene. I agree. I agree. The, the, you could you could see the evolution of Agumar uh, as he went. Uh, I think that he he knew that he was going to die, but I thought the the armor thing was. Not so much, I don't want to ruin, sully the legacy of this armor, but more, um, I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, yeah. You know, that he was going to be his own man to the end. And uh, knowing that there was consequence, that that really showed that there was some development in that character and that he was a, you know, he, he had some nobility to him, even though he's, you know, sort of a, pompous jackass. Um, I think at one point he might've figured out he was a pompous jackass and he rode that, he he rode that pony to the end, but uh, he, he did know that it was for a greater purpose. Well, I also get the feeling that like from what they've set up of that culture, it didn't seem to surprise anybody that he was looking to go to the wall. So it seems like a culture where the leader is on the front line. And there's something to be said about leaders who put themselves on the front line with their soldiers and fight alongside them in a booster of morale for for everybody. And the fact that 
I, I feel like he had that aspect. In other words, in the same way that I kind of look at a lot of characters as none of them are all flawed or all perfect, he had good qualities. And I don't know that all of them showed up in those last minutes. I think his bravado hit a lot of them because he was putting forward that bravado mm-hmm. so much that because that's what he felt the leader needed to be. But underlying was there was never a question he was going to go to the front line. That was always part of who he was. And I think that was part of how whoever yeah, taught him the lead was. So, I mean, there were, there were certain yeah, good aspects to how he was as a leader. Yeah, that's that's part of the expectation. I mean, when you go back to, uh, you know, to to the, the old stories about the kings, you know, right on the right on the front line. They're the ones that are that are there. Their their role is not as a figurehead. It's to be a leader, a leader the of good the good ones. But there were a yeah. lot of bad ones that sat way in the back and sent forward people with orders for all the people in March. <laughs> there were a lot of those kinds of leaders, too. Yeah, but when you have like the, uh, you know, what was going on in, uh, you know, in in the uh, Marathian, was that it? Manetherin. Manetherin, thank you, sorry. Uh, yeah, the king was out there in the front. You know, it was, that was how things are done. So, yeah. Uh, so getting back to our, our timeline, uh, we're back in the eye of the world with Maureen and, and Rand, and Rand's asking, well, what is it? What is what is the eye of the world? What is the place we've come to? And Maureen says, we don't know. Dark friends purged any knowledge of it from the Tower Library centuries ago. Darn dark friends. Do we have any any thoughts related to this? I was kind of wondering why dark friends would want the knowledge of the place removed. I guess having that knowledge maybe keeps them there easier, but... It seemed like a strange point to me. Yeah, I, I think that it was it was sort of hidden in that, you know, they may have thought of it not necessarily as prison, but more of an exile. You know, he's 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 exiled like Napoleon was on, hmm. you know, on an island in the middle of the of, of the uh, of the Mediterranean. Um, that's not necessarily something you want public knowledge because. You know, somebody could just go in and go take them out. Well, and also if the dark friends have that information and manage to keep that information and just wipe it out from their library, it also allows them to manipulate things, which is part of where I kind of got toward the end. In rewatching, I picked up on the fact that was that the way to defeat him or did that break some seal that they needed him to break And he didn't realize it because they didn't have the stories telling them how the device worked or how the trap worked or how the prison held the person and what he did that he thought was reinforcing the chains actually weakened them. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Maureen's Mm -hmm. picking up of the rock at the end just kind of was throwing me for loops on that. Yeah. What was that? So I'm going to spell it out here a little, little more for you. Um, Rand asks, what is this place? referring to the eye of the world where they are at. And Maureen says, we don't know. Dark friends purged any knowledge of it from the tower libraries. Oh, that means there are dark friends in the tower. Yes. That does mean there's dark friends in the tower. But that also means that when Maureen told them that this is the dark one's prison, does she actually know that? Does she know that this is the eye of the world? Does she know that? See, I was thinking Mm. this entire time that the eye of the world wasn't even like in that dimension. So I 
I was thinking this whole time that it's a pocket dimension and I was looking forward to some woo-woo to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not think you could literally walk to the eye of the world. So now that you're saying something, maybe I was right this whole time. Maybe you were right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like if you build the ultimate prison to hold somebody in and then somebody deletes the plans of those pri- that prison and then you need to find a go- way to go in, you may not be doing a good thing and trying to get into that prison you may be actually making a way for that prison the prisoner to get out that's true that's true if you have a prison like that and you go into it guess what the further you go into it the further away you get from the door you just made are we even certain it's a prison to begin with Mm, valid valid who knows what it is as maureen says they don't actually know this episode and this season brings up a lot more vagities than we thought. That's true. That there's we thought we're going to get resolved or that we thought we already had resolved. And now there's just more questions and more uh, impossible possibilities and so many ways everything could go by the end of this episode just created on this episode alone. Yeah. yeah, answers are few and far between. And and I'm I can tell you that that is the way of the books. Um, the end of nearly every book, it seems like the multi-headed Hydra just gets that much more multi-headed, and you have no idea how it's all going to come back together in the end. It does eventually, and it's amazing when it does. But every book, it seems like it just gets more and more intense. So they're they're, they're following that very well here. Sell a lot of books that way. Yeah. That's true. And you, you have to, have, but you have to have something in the books to keep people coming back because otherwise they'll be like, ah, this well, is there's cool. also a balance that you have to have. And there's series, I mean, some people disagree with me on this, but one of the things I thought uh, was a, a, a difficulty for Lost was eventually they started creating more heads for the Hydra, then mm-hmm. they cut off. So, I mean, it yeah. was like you were, okay, wait, now I've got 900 more theories and you've only answered <laughs> one of the questions that you had from previous season. Like it just got right. frustrating for a lot yeah. of the watchers. And this one, I don't feel had that. I feel like it wrapped up some things and we got some conclusion on things while it presented more questions. Yeah. And the thing is, when you when you answer those questions, they have to mean something. It can't just be, oh, this random thing. You know, there has to be a reason for it. Yeah. yeah. Seemed like we got a lot more answers about who's on what side of the fence uh, as far as who's kind of venturing towards the dark or who's venturing towards the light. But then we didn't get a lot of answers to be named soon. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't get a lot of answers about what the destination for the the storylines and the grand story overall was going to be. That kind of moved backwards. Okay, so uh, back to our storyline. Uh, Rand uh, is looking around. He says he can kind of remember this place, but not really. But then, uh, then he sees the the uh, a memory of Luz Theron Telamon walking in the room, and he also sees the Dark One there. And then Rand walk, walks over and touches the uh, the logo of the ancient Aes Sedai that's in the middle of the floor there, and suddenly he's elsewhere. And we see Rand and Egwene and Joya. Uh, Joya being Rant and Egwene's child, and they are in a nice idyllic little sheep farm somewhere up above the two rivers. Uh, what are we thinking? I didn't like this at all. <laughs> 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 and I was like 80% sure that it was fake or it was 
a creation that could be real, but wasn't presently. So I knew that much. Like there was a small part of me was like, maybe he got thrown forward. I was like, nah, it's, it's too pretty. Like it, there's a quality to this where it's like, it's too close to real that it like goes back around to fake. Um, and knowing that I was like, okay, some, something's up. So I don't know. Like I didn't know until dude showed up whether this was a feature of what he touched. Like that's just what it does to anybody, regardless of whether they're reborn dragons or not. Or if this was, you know, a trap from the dark one or one of the dark one's agents. All I knew was like, I was ready to get out of Dodge. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty creepy. But it was unsettlingly perfect. Yeah. Like like people, I, I, have to tip my hat to set dressers because I think they have a really hard job of figuring out what the balance is between making something look perfect, but then also having enough things that are out of place or, you know, just moved slightly so that it's not unsettlingly perfect. Because if you don't feel like it's real life, you're not ever going to feel like it's real life. It's always going to seem like a dream to you. So if you make the the setting too perfect, then you're always outside of it. And that's what it kind of felt like to me when they first got there. Well, it's like the details of, uh, you know, with the Matrix, if if the Matrix is too perfect, then the the brain rejects it. You know, it has to have some conflict you know, for the from those movies. Um, but the, one of the things that I also felt was there was there was overcompensation for certain things. Like, for instance, when he's in the house, there's a crib in there, which tells them that there's a baby involved. And then he goes outside and the crib is outside and the baby is in it. And I think I've looked at it a couple of times. I think it's supposed to be the same crib. Oh, yeah. interesting. So it moves. Interesting. Or they have two, which seems a little overkill for a small, you know, herding family. But hey, maybe maybe they get paid well as Dragon. I don't know. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to point out, um, our, our, our favorite uh, uh, character, Bella, is also in this scene. Hey. Uh, she was in the background in Rand's dream. So I guess the, the idea that Bella in, is, in fact, the Dragon Reborn is still alive. I'm going to express joy for <laughs> Axel. Yay. <Yes>. Yay. <laughs> uh, so then we jump back to Tarwin's Gap. Uh, and my notes just say Trollocs, Shinarans. And that was our scene. Shenanigans. Shenanigans. <laughs> uh, and then we jump back to Faldara. Um, and uh, Amalisa is uh, getting everybody who's not from the city to leave the city and, and uh, get out of Dodge while the getting's good. Um, the Shinaran women are all staying to defend, and uh, she wants all the women in town who can channel or touch the source to meet up with her. And uh, uh, Nynaeve and Egwene and Perrin and Loyal sit around and discuss, and they decide they're going to stay and they're going to help. And one thing I noticed when the foreigners were leaving, one of those was the seer. Min, yes. Min took off. Yeah, Min Min was like, I'm out of here. So what did she see? We saw what she saw. (laughs) Well, as it turns out that, you know, things kind of worked out in her favor but uh she decided to bounce so yeah. well and presumably she's foreign to it i got the impression that the ice die kind of placed her there as kind of an outside hiding place so i don't think she's natural to shaidara and to faldara so she's probably considered a foreigner and was leaving with the foreigners we also don't know if she can see her own future 
So if she doesn't know True. that she's going to survive whatever happens in the city, it makes perfect sense that she'd say, I'm getting out while the getting's good. Yeah. I mean, I would say that Min is is a fairly intelligent character with a good amount of self-preservation going on and was just like, yeah, I'm war's coming. I'm going. Yeah, true. Um, so we jump back to Tarwin's Gap and we get more Shinoerns and more Trollocs and it's all exciting. Um, and we get uh, Egwene and Nynaeve and Amalisa and two other random women that show up outside the city uh, to help. These are the women who can channel or touch the source. And uh, Amalisa makes a mention of, oh, I should have known more Reigns girls would be here, um, which does not put her on Nynaeve's good side. Nynaeve never misses the opportunity to make her statement, we belong to nobody but ourselves. Yes. Yep. Again, rugged individualism, but not a terminal case. (laughs) (laughs) Actually did not prove uh, too non-terminal for her in those. (laughs) Temporarily (laughs) terminal. Temporarily terminal. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Wait. Too soon. Sorry. Spoilers for those people who haven't reached this part of the episode. Uh, no, no, I'm I'm saying too soon since watching the episode, man. Oh, that, gotcha, that, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we're back at Faldara um, with Perrin and Loyal, and uh, Perrin's like talking about the way of the leaf, and he's like, "How can I follow the way of the leaf and and deal with Trollocs? What am I supposed to do?" And uh, Loyal turns into Mister Rogers pretty much and says, "Well, if you if you want to help, I have found." that the best way that you can help when people might need help is to ask them how you can help. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent cadence. Excellent cadence. (laughs) Nice. And uh, so, you know, we get our our little shooting star and the more you know. See, this also kind of led me in a, is Loyal a member of the Way of the Leaf? Yeah, I wondered that too, is if that's something that the gear just practice naturally because of where they live and yeah. how they live. Well, I think, but that's just logic. You know, it, it's like these are, these are master, you know, communicators, basically, you know, in terms of they can't, you know, they, they speak the truth. They speak very straightforwardly. It's like, yeah, if you don't know what to do, ask. It's common friggin' sense. You know, he's the biggest Jiminy Cricket ever. Well, Perrin was kind of talking to him like he was under the same constraints, too. At least that's what I got. Yeah, I can, I can see that where Perrin's kind of like, well, you know, how am I supposed to deal with this? Help me, you know, wise master kind of thing. When you got to figure they've traveled for a while here, so there may have been conversations on the road. And Perrin does strike me as very interested in talking to whoever will listen about his current decision of, do I want to follow the way of the leaf? We know that they were talking about it in the bar at one point because That's true. they were saying, what, you don't even eat meat? How does that work? Yeah, even in this world, vegans get shit on, man. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we jump back to Rand's dream, um, and uh, Rand is talking to Egwene in his dream, and he's like, uh, "So, but what about you going to the White Tower? You were supposed to go to the White Tower." And she said, "No, I, I decided against that. I want to, I want to be here with you." And uh, so Rand kind of looks at her for a second and starts asking her some questions, and he's uh, like, uh, "So you're walking in the desert, and you see a tortoise, and you flip it on its back." 
you see the tortoise struggling and, and the only way that the tortoise can right itself is with your help, but you don't reach out to help it. What do you do? And, uh, no, no, no laughter for that one at all. I, I don't know that that's a laughter kind of uh, connection. I that's a, that. oh, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> but it we points totally, out we later. We totally got caught on to the uh, logic questions to try and trip up. Mm-hmm, but I yeah. also mm-hmm. knew it wasn't going to work because he was asking questions that clearly this fantasy had been brought from his brain. So mm-hmm. any question he could think of would also be able to access that part of his brain where the answer is. That's so right. you kind of run a logic problem when you're asking things that are already in your own head. Yeah, yeah we, total we were sci-fi both, trope there. We were both screaming that at the screen in our house as well. So <laughs> yeah, that, that, that one did not get past a whole lot of people. In all honesty, you'd ask something for a question that you know would be a difficult answer from the person, but that you don't know the answer. And then you challenge them on whether or not you believe the answer that they gave is the answer that you believe that they would have given. So I, I actually realized how he could have used that situation to get the correct answer is at the beginning of that, before he asked her the question, he says, we were running away and I don't even remember the reason why. If he had asked her what the reason why was. Yes, because then he doesn't remember it. Although technically still, he may have at some point known it. And then yeah. that's a whether or not Might you can be a access memories that, yeah. that the person. I know. What I'm just saying is if yeah. you ask that question <laughs> that the person you don't know the answer to. You've always wanted to ask them. And here's your opportunity to ask them and then see if the answer is what you always wanted well, to hear. No, that, yeah, that, that's obviously why we need a Voight-Kampf test for these, these people. <laughs> <laughs> just, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, now it gets a laugh. Now it gets a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, you know, it's space. There's no space now. There, there was too soon. <laughs> it's interesting how he finally figures it out, though, because it's kind of along those same lines. Instead of looking at what her literal answers are, it lo- he looks at her motivations, and her motivations are going to be driven by something not that he wants, but something that she wants. Yeah. And whoever is reading his brain is going to see what he wants and say, "Okay, that's what we need to have her be." And that, but he also knows that's not her. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's definitely a case of like they've been putting into our heads all season, these people know each other. Right. Inside and out. Um, and so after after Rand kind of figures out that this is not his Egwene, uh, the Dark One shows up and hits the pause button on everything and uh, pretty much looks around and just says, hey, kid, uh, pretty much all this can be yours for the price of one soul. Just one soul. Give me your soul and all this is yours. Uh, what are we thinking? Um... I was like, oh gosh, Rand is learning. Like I like I noticed this is a very important point for him, like as a person. Like he is growing yeah. up. Like I think they're okay. So I don't think Rand would have said yes to this, even if it was the beginning of their journey. I do think Rand wouldn't necessarily have wavered precisely because of, you know. The, you know, oh, Egwene doesn't want this. I think in the beginning would have been like, well, this is wrong. So no, but now it's like, um, you know, I, you know, not only do I know my girl, but I am like, I don't want this precisely because she didn't choose it. So even if this would give me everything I want, it's, it's not real and it's not real because it's based on coercion. You know, 
I, you know, I don't want anything Egwene doesn't want. What she wants is greater than anything I could have. And so I like, I would rather like, he's like, I would rather have the joy that comes from Egwene living her best life, even if it's not exactly what I want, than building, making, forcing a world where yes, it is idyllic in my eyes. This is what I've wanted since I was a tiny tot and me and Egwene were running around in our diapers you know, um, because, you know, that's that's not true fulfillment. And, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about. Like, this is an episode of where everybody has to sacrifice something. And mm-hmm. I think this is his. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. much of a sacrifice it is as much as it is something that he's always wanted her to be happy. And I don't think he's really thought about what happiness looks like for himself. So he's very selfless. And that 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 character trait really shows through. See, I think that the selflessness is is there in that moment, but I don't know that he's had that all along, you know, cued by the fights that they've had. He clearly is at times decided that this is exactly what she wanted too, and that this is what they were going to do in his head. This is what was going to happen. And she was on board for it. And he has slowly learned that she's not. And I felt kind of an in this moment that he was finally accepting that she that this wasn't what she wanted. And now that I have it and I see it, I don't want it because it's not what she wanted. And it brings a, a lot of the illusion versus real and, and, you know, the, whether reality, if it's able to be adjusted, does that make it reality and, or, or is it illusion to have what you actually want if you're controlling it or making it happen? And the, the possibility of not getting it is what makes it more real. See, everything yeah. I saw about that little fantasy gave me the impression that Egwene would have been perfectly happy if he had said, yes, this is what we're going to do. We are going to have this little idyllic family. He would have made her happy, but he didn't choose that. He chose giving her the agency to make her own decisions. Like To me, this was, he didn't choose light. He didn't choose dark. He chose Egwene. Yeah. And it, that, that also speaks to Egwene's selflessness also. They're 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 both selfless characters, so it's it's really hard to have a real want and a real desire when your happiness is tied up in other people's. Yeah. So it speaks really well to both of their characters. And and it's a lot of choice that a lot of people would make. I mean, how many people, you know, Reddit has entire forums about, you know, partners who <laughs> coerce you know, their partners into being the person that they want them to be and not the person who they really are. Reddit has a lot of forums about everything. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back at the eye of the world, uh, the dark one's talking to Maureen. He's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm enticing Rand here. And Maureen puts a knife to Rand's throat and says, well, if he makes the wrong decision, I'll, I'll end his life because I'm not letting him make that decision. Um, do you believe her? Oh yeah, uh-huh. we, we we know <laughs> absolutely ruthless. Yeah. yeah, that goes that goes right back to the you know to the fairy. Well, not only especially did she now pull that, that she doesn't have the, the power. That there was blood coming out. Mm-hmm. That was also a little more blood than you want to make if you're cutting in that area. Like you're already getting him to a point where he's not going to recover from this. Yeah, that is taking care of business. So uh, jumping back to Faldara Keep, uh, boy, this episode jumps around a lot. Uh, we're back with the Sons of Shinar. They're using pickaxes in the throne room. 
uh, Perrin and Loyal show up, and like Loyal said, they say, how can we help? And they say, well, here's a pickaxe. Go ahead. Help. You got strong backs. Do something. Yeah. And then we jump outside again to Tarwin's Gap, where there are Trollocs, and there are Shinarans, and they are yelling things. And then we're back into Rand's dream. Um, and the Dark One is saying, hey, look, all right. If you don't want it, that's fine, whatever. And he just makes a little gesture and Egwene's throat is slit. Um, and Rand gets very upset about that. And the Dark One says, what? I thought you said she, she wasn't real. And, and Rand gives a, a very definitive no. And uh, Egwene's throat unslits. And, and he realizes that he was the one who actually did that. So he turns to the dark one and says, okay, how do I do it? How, how do I make this real? Yeah. I don't, I didn't catch so much that he, that he was the one that, that stopped it more. He said no. And the dark one just kind of gave it a little wrist flick and that stopped it. So mm. I, that, that's, that's what, what I, I saw. got from I, that scene too. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah, I saw too. that the dark one was trying to, uh, not necessarily appease him, but more, uh, Let's play this out a little longer. Yeah, entice him. Like, look what I can do. I can do this, and then I can undo it. You want to mm-hmm. learn how? Okay. Okay. I, I I am not saying that I am right or I am wrong. I'm actually pretty sure I'm wrong in this situation, but, you know, yeah. I, yeah, I was like, oh, Rand's getting bullied, you know? And Yep. Uh, so then we flash back out of the dream, uh, and there's Maureen, the dark one. Maureen, as you said, starts drawing blood on Rand's throat. And then we jump back to Faldara Keep, um, where uh, um, we see the back door of the keep, and we hear knock knock from Pod and Fane. And they open the door and say, "Who's there?" And Pod and Fane says, "Interrupting Mirdral." And they say, "Interrupting Mirdral." <laughs> <laughs> and that joke is never going to get old. I'm, sorry. Listen, I'm going to laugh every time. That Pod and Fane. Yeah. Um, and so here comes our old friend Pad and Fane into the keep. Um, I had feelings on this. Uh, I had suspicions. Yeah. Uh, so what are we thinking about Pad and Fane right now? What 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 suspicions do we have? Definitely a dark friend. Him? Yes. Oh yes. Yeah, he was chilling too hard with those fades. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> when you got four fades trailing you into the keep, I, I think it's pretty good. If everybody yes. gets reincarnated. And, you know, the dragon has been reborn. Is Ishamael reborn? Ooh. Yeah, what are the reincarnations? That's interesting. Not saying that Patton Fane is Ishamael, but that was one of the things that I had thought of, like, wonder if he's like one of the major players reborn to play his part again. He's definitely... They're supposed to be immortal, though. He definitely comes across as very high high ranking in the Dark One hierarchy, given that he's got fades doing his dirty work for him. Yep. Yeah. 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 He's a, he is, he is a, a lieutenant spy. He's, he's got the, he's got the goods. Uh, so we jump over to uh, Perrin Loyal and, and the sons of Shinar and uh, we find out what they're, what they're doing in the throne room. They are digging up the Horn of Valier. This means nothing to any of you. Absolutely. No, I did not. Does. Not a thing. Nope. I'm like, Hey, there's a thing. Cool. Okay. No, I thought Valerian. That's 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 yeah. all I thought of it. Yeah. All right. I'll give you a little bit of lore here since the the show didn't bother to do it. The Horn of Valir is it's a 
a thing of legend um, that is said is needed at the last battle at Tarmengaiden when when the dragon fights the Dark One. Um, it is a horn that supposedly calls the souls of the dead heroes back to fight. Um, these dead heroes are known as heroes of the horn, and they are people whose exploits um, have become legendary and their souls have become tied to the horn so that when somebody blows the horn, they come back and fight. And mm. that very, is what. Very Gabriel so, and. Well, yeah, yeah, very much. It, it's definitely based on the, the Gabriel myth. Yeah. Very it, much so. It brings an interesting concept to me of, of so are the spirits in the horn or it's somehow attached to the horn in a way that they're, you're summoning the spirits or are the people who are those spirits being reincarnated every time. And if this horn gets blown, that person will realize that that spirit, which gave me the thought of like uh, Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. the ones that oh. didn't know they were Cylons. <laughs> right. So are we going to have characters that are not important, Sleep. just like standing by suddenly go, wait a minute, I'm one of those guys. Way out of here. So you're saying when somebody blows the horn of Valier, it plays all along the watchtower? Yes, and okay. it's like it's like somebody hypnotized everybody, and somebody else goes, "I'm in the YMCA," and starts dancing. <laughs> <laughs> An actual thing that happened to me, so uh, I'll. I'll admit my No, those are all great theories. I love all of them. Was it a hypnotist at a stand-up show or something? I was actually in my college. Uh, the oh, hypnotist okay. came, hypnotized ah. everybody. I was one of the volunteers, went up to the whole thing about him making us. I forgot a number in one through 10, and the other person was given a, a number to repeat. And then we were told to count our fingers. So I only had nine fingers, and he had 11 <laughs> fingers. But then we were sent back, and we didn't quite remember. But we, he gave everybody different things that they, when he'd say something, they would stand up and do a, like a karaoke routine to either like Madonna or something like that. And when they played uh, YMCA, I was like, he's like, I'd like to welcome the village people. And I turned to my friend sitting next to me, goes, that's me. And like, danced to the room and I forgot up on the stage. We were doing the choreography dead in time with each other as if we'd rehearsed this. All five people did not know each other, five or six people. Yeah. So, so that actually happened. Okay. Sweet. <laughs> so that's a that's a take on sleeper agents that I had never kind of encountered before. <laughs> <laughs> I like it though. So uh, back to our excitement in Tarwin's Gap. Uh, not to cut all of the YMCA talk short, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> how do we go from Bob Dylan to the Village People? Like? Yeah, yeah, really. That that's the sin right there. How do we get from Bob Dylan to the Village People? Uh, so back in Tarwin's Gap, uh, we've got Amalisa, and she's saying, look, I'm going to link us all. Don't fight it. I'm going to reach out and, and embrace Sidar through you. Um, and she does and links up with everybody, and then she realizes exactly how much power she's just linked into with uh, Nynaeve and Egwene. Um, and she she looks a little happy about it. Did anyone else notice that the the strings of everything coming from Nynaeve were a little brighter than yes. anybody else's? Oh, Her yes, and Egwene both that was were great. much brighter. brighter and thicker. Yeah, I mean, she'd never experienced that much. Like she, you know, she was accepted, but she wasn't. You know, she wasn't given the shawl. You know, they sent yeah. her back home with her ring, but no stone. And you know, so she can she can channel. Um, 
but obviously she didn't have, you know, the capacity, the power to experience anything close. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah, she was she was definitely over her head. But uh... I wonder if part of that came from the fact that there was Nynaeve and Egwene in the mix. Like if she just had five people who were of mediocre level, she would have been fine. But here she is dealing with somebody that surprised all of the Aes Sedai. And someone's like, well, that's a little more power than I could handle. Well, it goes back to um, the episode where they gentle um, and kind of insinuating that the power is very addictive, that people get addicted to touching the source. Well, I think she might be a little, she kind of gets that instant high when yeah. she touches that much power. Yeah. She got, she kind of started freebasing right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was her first hit of the good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, this is the first time with black tar sidar. Right. Yeah. Or before it's only been like oh. just dirt weed. Yeah. <laughs> Skunk source. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Siobhan, you were about to say. No, I was just going to say that one of the things I liked about the way they shot that scene where all five women are, um, you know, bound together by the power is that they shot them from above and you could see like there's a circle of women and they're connected by a five pointed star. Which is and my you know, wife really, pointed out the pentagram. Yeah, really prominent symbol in neo pagan traditions. Yeah, and and I I don't think that was an accident either. Oh I mean, no, it yeah. looked very yeah. intentional. Uh, so then we jump back inside the keep. Uh, Perrin uh, looks over and he sees Pat and Fane sitting there, and Pat and Fane just jump, jumps up and walks off, and uh, Perrin decides to pursue him. And uh, decides not to take a weapon with him in his pursuit. Uh, do we have any thoughts on this? Yeah, the way the leaf is only going to get you so far against, you know, yeah. Mr. Well, Big also, there. He doesn't necessarily have a reason to know him to be a threat yet. Yeah. He's a family friend, like a friend of the town kind of thing. Like, it's, it's more of a, hey, what the heck are you doing here, man? We're here at the same time. Yeah. yeah. thought I you saw you to? in town earlier. Yeah. How did you get away from the Trollocs? Well, Good funny question. story, that. <laughs> <laughs> Story. I know this fade. <laughs> <laughs> I know a guy who knows a guy. We jump back to the eye of the world. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, we are back at the eye of the world in Rand's dream. Uh, and, and the dark one is like, hey, hey, you want to buy a baby? <laughs> can have this baby. You can have this this whole whole thing I got here. Just one soul. It's all it's gonna cost you. Just one soul. Come on. I I, I got to move this one before the end of the month. Does it have this to be in- my soul? <laughs> <laughs> this entire showcase could be yours if the price yeah. is right and so the dark one's just like all right all you gotta do is just uh let the power flow through you like like a sieve uh, uh like a colander if you will um and that is a joke that none of you get but i <laughs> guarantee that every one of the book readers right now is laughing their ass off so that one's not for you you, you, you will have to, have to explain it that to us when it comes to when it. when when it becomes obvious it will be obvious you 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 will get it gotcha. well there there was the you know the, the, there there was the the mention earlier that when the male match gives you this was in the uh in the in that uh that extra animation uh, about how when the male users used the the one power, it was through force and trying to 
you know, bring it in the direction it was where the, the, the women would just sort of let it flow. Um, this seems like more of a, your natural inclination maybe to force it where it goes, but if you just kind of let it go through you, then it will be more powerful. It's kind of what I got out of it. Yeah, I, I have to thought. admit that that caught me as well. The idea that um, we were told that male channelers had to fight the force. That it was a very violent interaction, but that doesn't mm. seem to be how this scene is going. Right. Uh, and then uh, jumping in into the eye of the world itself with Maureen and the Dark One. Um, Dark One saying, oh, it looks like he's starting to channel. Is he going to help me or is he going to hurt me? Do you know? Do I? Who knows what's going to happen? Let's find out. Uh, pretty much seemed very unconcerned at this point. Confident things were going to go his way or confident that either way he has a plan that's going to work out. Yeah, I don't think he was afraid that he wouldn't have the upper hand here regardless. Yeah. Uh, so we jump back to Tarwin's Gap, and there are more Trollocs. Trollocs everywhere. Um, and Amelisa takes all of the power that she's been sucking into her from from these other uh, channelers and uh, pretty much goes uh, uh, Super Saiyan. Uh, go boom. Yeah, she, mm -hmm. she discovers uh, how to make Trollocs go explodey. That lightning stuff was pretty freaking amazing. I love yeah, watching yeah, it was... strike different groups that you'd see like in the shadow run and then the strike. And then like the next strike, you just see the bits of the previous strike. <laughs> it was really... And you know, to throw back one of the, to really quickly look back at when they were attacking the windows, the firing uh, windows for the crossbows, it was so beautifully done on both sides of that. The decision of how that was tactically done and mm -hmm. how they were trying to get up to the window to get in, but how defensive that position is and how many they'd be able to take out in time. It was really well done. This whole, yeah. that whole fight scene was a lovely little interspersed part of all of this for me. That That's true because it's like they were getting up there and you could see that, you know, they'd take out a brick or two and then they would get, you know, right between the eyes of a crossbow bolt, you know, right in the, right, right in the memories. But uh, yeah, eventually they would get through. You, you just knew that it was a war of attrition there. Well, you also have to think about the people who their sole job was to be underneath everybody as they ran up the pile <laughs> yep. of Trollocs. That guy on the bottom is not alive anymore. I mean, that's just that many Trollocs have tromped up you and tromped up you. And they don't seem like they have a soft foot. So I'm no. going to guess that anybody <laughs> at the bottom of that pile is not going to be in the next battle. Yeah, probably not. I mean, the, the Trollocs seem to be a single use you know, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're very disposable. Not sort. recyclable at all. No. Right. Um, so we're back inside Faldara and we, uh, we find that they've gotten the, the Horn of Valier free of, of where it's been hidden. Um, and then they hear some fades screeching off in the distance and go running off after the fades. Um, and leaving the horn. Undefended. Yeah. What was that? I mean, Loyal was still there. Loyal's big guy. Yeah, but. And then we jump back into Rand's dream. Um, and the Dark One's just saying, just pull in all of the one power that you can and make this real. Make pretend real. Um, then we jump back to Tarwin's Gap, where Amelisa is still making Trollic Burger. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was a, that was a serious fuck all y'all yeah. moment. Slat. I think she yeah. overcooked them. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. 
Damn that was yeah. Trollic in the microwave for too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they started sparking yeah. how, and just. <laughs> how many times do I have to talk to you guys about putting Trollic in the break room microwave? <laughs> we all know how it stinks up the office. When you didn't take all, all the metal off first, the too. You're not supposed to put metal in Stop there. leaving your tinfoil on the. <laughs> Uh, so jumping back into Rand's dream, um, the Dark One uh, realizes Rand is not going to do it. He says, why don't you want this? And that's when Rand says, it's not what she wants, and it's not that's not the woman I love. So this whole thing that you're trying to give me is uh, is is bullshit, and I'm not buying it. And uh, Rand uh, reaches into his pocket and grabs the uh, Sangreal that, that uh, Moraine had given him previously and puts all of the the uh, power that he's channeling into that and then uh, does some kind of super dragon punch technique, I guess, (laughs) to the Dark One. And uh, yeah, the Dark One disappears. The Dark One was really scared after he really found out that Rand was going to go the other way, started backing away and kind of had that look on his face that all that confidence he had in the previous scene with Moraine just melted away completely. Yeah, very much so. One of the things I found interesting was uh, that as they kept spinning around in the dream world where Egwene was, was where Moraine was in the, in the real world. Hmm. I I in the same positions. It was him, the dark one. And then they kept flipping back and forth between it was Moraine or Egwene. Oh, interesting. I hadn't noticed that. I I loved that technique. I thought that was really effective. Yep. Um, so we go back to Faldara and uh, we see Perrin wandering around the halls um, and, and he hears fades back the direction he came from. So he heads back and uh, this is where we, we uh, I can't even talk about it. I can't. Okay, fine. I'll talk about it. Uh, he sees <laughs> two fades stabbing away at everybody else and we see Fane stabbing Loyal. <clears throat> loyal? Yeah, no! I know. And mocking, gosh, mocking Perrin as he did it. I was ready yeah. to fight. Yeah. I, if you had heard the noise that came out of me when, when this scene happened, it, it, it was <laughs> it was ungodly. Um, what, what do we think about well, what just no, happened? Okay, so a quick question for you on that. Knowing the books as you did going into this scene, did you know Loyal was going to bite it here? Loyal survives till the end of the books. Oh, I knew it. So it was a change for you. Yeah. See, and that was what hit me because I, from our interactions, I expected both loyal and Uno to survive at least a little longer Mm -hmm. and both of them are now dead. So that was a real surprise to me. I don't think think he's dead. No, I did not see Uno in any sort of death throes. He was just sort of, you know, he wasn't still, (sighs) he was coughing. He was... He was wounded, not dead. Yeah, I think Perrin was lured away. Like, it took me a couple watch-throughs to figure this out, but I think he was intentionally lured away to kind mm-hmm. of, like, clear, give, you know, give Pat and Fane and the the Fades, like, a clearer shot. I don't know what they thought Perrin would do if Perrin was around, but I think it was absolutely intentional that Perrin wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. And he may have interrupted them before they absolutely finished the job. I'm holding out hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing is that uh, 
Loyal has been stabbed by the Shadarlo Goth blade now. Yeah. And what oh. what comes from that as well, if it's not if it's not a mortal stabbing, which I, I can't see how it isn't, but if it's not, there might be something there with the fact that it's a the Shadarlo Goth blade. Wait, where was it the Shadarlo Goth blade? Uh, they do get a, a good glimpse of the the and it's blade. The one, later. It's the one from. It, it, it is yeah. the same blade from Shadar Lagoth. Yes. He's putting he it back in its sheath. Yes. He was in the same. He was in the same town as uh, Lan when he took it away. Oh, <laughs> I did not pick Lan up on that. Lan sucks at, all. at hiding evil yeah. artifacts. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's not so good at his artifact, uh, Scorgolin. Um. So. Uh, about this scene, I'm going to say I don't think Uno is dead um, because I watched the scene several times in a row and I could not pick out Uno's body anywhere. And I tried also. The Last time I saw him, he Uno, was coughing. The la- and the uh, actor playing Uno was not listed in the x-ray in that scene. So I'm going to say that Uno um, was on a smoke break and was not there. Um, <laughs> I hope and so. Then, it's just a flesh wound. I am also going to go out and on a limb and say that Loyal is not dead. Absolutely not 100%. That's, I, I can see that happening. I also now am wondering, as far as if, if Peyton Fane was using that dagger, is it possible that the dagger is what's turned him dark or was Peyton Fane all the, always that way? Uh, I, don't I know. think he was always that way. Yeah. I think he was always that way. As he said, he's, he's been spying on him for years. So, you know, just him having it is just a... It's just a bonus. He had that quip about balance. Like some, like he needs to be, you know, a dark friend. It, like, I think he does it like for the fun of it, honestly. Um, <laughs> versus someone like Dana, who was like, oh no, I believe in this wholeheartedly. Like, you know, Pat and Fane's like, oh, this is how it shakes out. And I'm having a good time. So yeah. <laughs> so it's like in, in uh, role-playing games, the true neutral character, technically, if they're sticking true to things, would actually switch sides in a battle if one side started getting ahead, because the idea is that it needs to be an even fight. So if they're losing, I have to join and help them tie. I think it'd be more chaotic neutral, but that's just me. So getting back to my point that Loyal is 100% absolutely still alive, I just wanted to get back to that just to point out that I'm, I'm not saying that out of any, I think that this is true or I, I have evidence to the contrary or anything like that. I'm saying that as a threat. We, we <laughs> this is true. This Valid. is true. Showrunners be warned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we jump to Tarwin's gap and uh, we've got Amalisa after, after turning all the Trollocs into burger, um, she's looking like she's enjoying that power, like quite yeah. a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's already burned much. at least one person there with her out. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, I can feel the whole world, every be- breath and gust and stone and life, everything. Um, and yeah, Dave, or, uh, yeah, it was David. You brought this up earlier, uh, about, how the power is, is very addictive and there's a, a, a form of addiction happening there. And I think we can really see that in this scene. Um, yeah, that definitely. Look on her face. Really? That's, I got something, I wouldn't say completely different because she was clearly enjoying it. Like this is something, the most <laughs> new novel experience, like she's been locked out of her entire life through no fault of her own. And she finally gets to have it. But I also like, for me, I read fear 
because she couldn't turn it off. Yeah, that's um, kind of what I got was, I don't know where the off switch is on this thing. Oh, no. Yeah, no, because, I, you know, Nynaeve and, a, and I think Egwene, one of the two, were like, you need to stop. Th-. It was it was Nynaeve who was like, you need to stop this. You know, people are dying. And she's like, I, I can't turn it off. And I didn't read it as I can't because I don't want to. I read it as I can't because this thing is beyond me. And so, like, I, like I'm a huge Supernatural fan. I've seen every single episode in all 15 seasons. It's bad. But there's this, <laughs> no, no, the show is bad. And also, you know, my enjoyment yeah, of that like, show is bad. Show or your addiction, one of the two. <laughs> Both. Um, but there's this thing with angels where angels can technically inhabit any body, but there are some bodies that, c- that cannot handle certain angels, either because there's a blood link between that human body and the angel or because that angel is too powerful for that human body. And so what happens is that, and, you know, a human says yes to that angel and then either immediately they blow up or eventually they, you know, literally burn out. And yeah. that's what I was reminded here. Like, you know, her body, she couldn't become an Aes Sedai for a reason. You know, her she has, you know, she has access to the one power, but she can only channel it so much. It's it's you know, it's a trickle, as she herself said so. And having that access for, you know, for the first time ever, it's you know, earth, you know, earthly like amounts of it at once. And she's also with two people who are also barely channelers. Like it, it was overwhelming. And I think she had very quickly reached that point of no return where she was going to die. And so I, you know, she was like, wow, I'm going to enjoy this for the five seconds. I have it, but also <laughs> I'm dying. And this is very scary. Yeah, I got I got like Belloc from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, it's beautiful. <laughs> and then everything and, and he explodes. And then their faces so. melt. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. So uh speaking of their faces melt, uh the Amalisa's faces face melts. And yep. uh very happy Halloween. Looks like Egwene's face is kind of wanting to melt, and Nynaeve seems to grab hold of Egwene and, and kind of pull whatever that is out of her. And then uh, the the scene kind of ends, and we've got Nynaeve looking to also be burned out, and and Egwene looking just fine. Uh, what are we thinking right now? Nynaeve, did you notice she used the women's council? I don't know if it's like a, a ceremony or what. The words that she used when ceremony. she first initiated mm-hmm. Egwene, she used the same words there as she's pulling that one power away from her to keep her from burning through. That was really powerful for me. Yeah, I got that as kind of a goodbye of remember these things. Remember what we told you, how we will always be standing with you because I am now going to channel what is going through you and burning everybody. I'm going to cut the channel to you and have it channel through me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like she in the equivalent of diving in front of a bullet for her and yeah. said her goodbyes as it was burning her out. Again, that sacrifice again. Sacrifice, yeah. Nynaeve yeah. loves them so much. Yes. So uh, we jump back to Faldara. Um, we're back with Pod and Fane again. And this is where we actually see that Shatter Logoth dagger as he's putting it away. Um, and he's talking to Perrin. He says, do you think I really wanted to spend every bell time in that stupid little fly speck village of yours? That's not why I was there. I, I was there to watch all of you because there were five Taviran in town. And usually in any generation in the entire world, there are one or two Taviran at most. 
And there were five in one village. So you're damn right. My boss wanted me to keep an eye on you guys. Did you guys get anything new out of that uh, exchange? I got a couple of things. Um, one was his description of why he follows the dark one. He said, because there must be balance. And I thought that was an interesting contrast with, um, what was her name? Dana? Yeah, Dana. Dana's in it to stop the wheel. She's like, we continue being reborn into suffering. This is a horrible thing. I want it to end. He, um, Perrin is, or, sorry, Fane is saying, um, we have to have balance in the wheel. We have to have both light and dark. And to me, it really sounds like the dark one uses whatever sales technique best works for that individual. You know, also the the whole you can have the idyllic life you want was the sales pitch he used on Rand. Yeah. Like I noticed he's, you know, in the middle of that, he told Perrin, he's like, yeah, all five of you are not going to be, you know, agents of the light. So, you know, welcome home when you come over. I'll see you soon. I didn't like that. But I also I was like, you might not be wrong. You probably aren't wrong because, you know, just the odds, there's five of them. Mm hmm. And they immediately shot to Matt. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. That was subtle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They definitely want us to think that Matt is the one who's going to turn traitor. Well, and it's still, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing what Matt was doing during this. I felt oddly oh, yeah, protective of Matt during uh, that. Traveling that to Shadar Logoth, know, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, no, that was, that was uh, Tarvalon. So it was uh, Tarvalon. It, it, yeah, if you look up up from the street that he's approaching, the the White Tower. The White Tower is there. Okay. Yeah. So uh, th I I have complicated feelings about Matt because although he I can't say he's my favorite character, he's definitely the one I identify with the most. Um, mm. And should we be I, worried? <laughs> <laughs> when I said I was a hot mess when I was twenty, I was I was not um, exaggerating at all. Gotcha. And. Uh, Show me somebody who's not a hot mess when they're 20. That's Fair. True. Yeah. Um, and I think like, okay, he's a, he's a, he's a good kid at heart, but I think some of the things that make him a good kid are also his greatest weaknesses. Like if you, if the, if he had turned out to be the dragon and the dark one had stuck him back in two rivers and said, your friends are safe, your sisters are safe. Um, I guarantee that, you know, my forces will never disturb you again. And as a little bonus present, you're, parents have gone to family counseling and have started getting their shit together <laughs> he would have he would have taken that in a hot minute like yeah does Tarvalon have Al-Anon <laughs> <laughs> no Al-Anon's uh, the Shannara that's a whole different uh, fantasy series gotcha gotcha <laughs> well I get the impression from this that we're still in that Voltron theory of all of them have one piece of the dragon reborn and Rand's just kind of happens to be that connection to the past and anything he's done it to this point doesn't really prove that he's the one dragon. Right. And I get that because he said that that many Tavirin in one place doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. Yeah. You would think that if it had happened, that would be something that, would be known as much as a dragon existing in the past is known. So that makes me lean again towards the fact that all of them are a part of the dragon. I'm starting to wonder if it's kind of like um, 
a good omen situation where you have one antichrist, but all the other people were also in the prophecy. You need the guy who breaks the computers. You need the people who do X, Y, and Z to make it all come together the way it's supposed to. That's what Pat and Fane said. I am. Yeah. They'll have a part to play. Yep. Well, one of the interesting things, if we run with this idea that all five are the dragon, it's an interesting idea that uh, which one of them should have to blow the horn. Yeah. You had something you were trying to say, Samaria? Um, actually, Siobhan said it for me where, you know, I um, like, know that cut scene when they're like, when Pat and Fane says, you know, some of you guys are going to turn dark and it's, you know, oh, look at Matt. Um, I was like, wait, that's not fair. Like, I, Matt, Matt frustrates me, but like, I want him to make it because I like I can recognize the pain he's in and the pain he's had to grow up in and, you know, the psychological impact of seeing his friends grow up, you know, safe and loved and wanted. And he does not have that. And yet, you know, he still sticks around and does his best. And I think, you know, because I wasn't quite sure it was Tarvalon, but, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, if that's Tarvalon and he's headed back to Tarvalon, he knows what's going to happen to him there. And maybe I'm projecting, but him going to a place where is it is literally an existential threat to him because he knows that they can and they will kill him or, you know, gentle him if they if and when they find out that he can channel instead of just going home, you know, which is what he wants. And yes, he, you know. If he goes home, Trollocs come back and, you know, he puts his sisters at risk. But, you know, I do think Matt would go home and say, I just wanted to make sure you guys are OK and then dip out. Um, but him going to a place where he cannot hide and either he knows people will return to him, they'll come back to him, they'll meet him, you know, there. Or he's going specifically to be gentle, knowing this, you know, it's like, you know, that's that's. That's character. And, you know, I just, I I, I didn't like the idea like, oh, Matt's, you know, he's, he's a bad guy when he's doing something that can only harm him, but in the process of that help other people. So. Yeah, I did kind of get the vibe when he didn't go in there. It was also to protect them. It wasn't just like, I fear for everything. It was like, no, I don't think you guys need me along. I think I will endanger things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that is a, a huge character trait of Matt is his selflessness. It really is there. He's got, you know, sort of this roguish kind of thing, but just look at him with his family. Look at him with, with children. He is selfless when it comes to that. Okay, so I feel like we need to uh, address a giant elephant in the room right now. Um which is, I have not been sure when or how I was going to bring this up with you all. Um, yeah. Um, but since, since, since you were just talking about Matt and, at, at, and his last, um, the last time we saw him this season. Um, so they filmed this in blocks, uh, blocks of two episodes each. And they filmed the first three blocks before COVID hit. Um, so we had up through episode six before COVID hit. Um, then they had to shut down production for almost a year. Um, and then they came back and for whatever reason, um, it has not been made 
clear why uh, Barney Harris did not return to the production. Um, hmm. And the role oh. of Matt will be picked up by a new actor next season. Uh, we know the the actor who's taking it over. I don't remember the name his name off the top of my head right now. Um, but he will be played by a new actor next season. Um, the only things that we know are that the production was happy with his portrayal of Matt. Um, there does not seem to be any bad blood either way. Um, we, I personally don't want to speculate as to why. Okay. I just want to, you know, wish, uh, uh, um, Barney Harris and his family, um, good health and, and good luck in future endeavors. Um, yeah, you did yeah. a great job, Barney. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, we made us love you. You will be missed. Yeah. So, so I, I, like I said, I didn't know where to bring that up, but I figured since that you guys were just discussing Matt's last scene, I would, I would let you know that um, we actually knew about this before the season even started. So, so out of curiosity, was it still in the script that he wouldn't go in the portal, or was that changed to adapt for the fact that the the actor was? No, that that was changed to 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 adapt for the fact that the actor was not returning. So just okay. for the sake, I don't think this is spoilers for anybody here. If we, what did Matt do in this battle? Did he stay with, with uh parent to, to dig up the horn? Um, did he... I can tell you that um, a lot in this episode ap- happened differently than it did in the book. Okay. Um, um, but uh, all five of them were actually there at the eye of the world. Okay. Um, oh. So mm-hmm. they, they changed things up a bit in that way. So I don't know where Matt would have been in, in, this episode, um, I, I suspect probably with Perrin and Loyal, um, but I, if we I, ever I get a Q and A with the scriptwriters, that's I, one of my first questions would be, "What was the original plan?" Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I, I like I said, I didn't know when and where I was going to bring that up, but I figured this was probably as good a place as any to rip that bandaid off and 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 let you guys in on that. Interesting. I, I didn't want to give it to you earlier because I wanted to see you react naturally without knowing that that was what was behind Matt not being in in the scenes. Oh, that's so. interesting. Hmm. I, I think it still fit with the character and was you know well done. Compliments to the writers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Absolutely. It, it it felt fairly seamless. I mean, I I knew the seam was there and I could see it because I knew it was there and was looking for it. But for most people, it was fairly seamless. Hmm. Um. Anyway. Uh, I think we can get back to our, our recap now since we're almost at the end of the episode. Um, and we're back at the eye of the world with Maureen and Rand. And uh, Rand says, yeah, I, I felt the madness from from touching the uh, Sidene. I'm not going to make anybody deal with me after after I touch that. Uh, just tell everybody I died. I'm going to pull a cane from Kung Fu and just walk into the, into the desert and just leave me be. And Maureen just kind of lets him go. You sad Hulk walking away music. <laughs> I, I loved the, the uh, you know, you'll figure out a way. You know how to manipulate the truth. You'll find a way to tell them without lying. Like yeah. that automatically showed a growth for Rand because I don't think that was his feeling when he first met her and was like, oh, she's nice to die. And he was all, um, now it's kind of like, I know you know how to manipulate the truth. You're just going to do it for me now. I like the fact that she asked him where he was going and he just didn't answer. Like, <laughs> just completely flipped the table. He not know either at it. this point. No, I, I don't think, think yeah. he knows. He's going to walk the earth. Wants to be a f- as far away from those he loves as possible, is what I got. So then uh, Lan shows up. Um, and, and Maureen, Lan asks her where Rand is and she just shakes her head and says he's gone. 
which, as we know, the is the truth. <laughs> um, and Lan asks her to unmask the bond, and she says uh, she can't. She, she, she can't touch the source. Um, what are we thinking? The question that hit my head is, if she can't do it, is it because she isn't able to undo the masking or if he had removed her from the source, would she automatically be removed from the bond? Is the bond tied to her ability to touch the source? I don't think it is. I, but that's also because I don't think it's not that she can't, well, obviously she can't touch the source, but I don't think it's because she's no longer a channeler. I think she's blocked. So, you know, Mm -hmm. So you think she's got a block, but she's not stilled. Yeah, that's. Yes. Yeah. I don't feel. I think I she would have used that. the word still. Right. I think it can be undone because he. Well, he said, you know, how does it feel to be, you know, to know that the source is at the end of your fingertips, but you can't touch it, which yeah. says to me yeah. that she can still do it, but you know, it. There's just not right now. Just not right now. Yeah. And yeah, if she you can go still back, sense it. he left her still the feeling of it. Hmm. Which is more torturous than actually stilling her. Yes. She knows it's there, can feel it at the tip of her fingers and can't touch it. Which is but kind I guess of my like question what he's been was, in. if she had not been masking the bond and he did this to her, would that also have possibly still masked the bond? Is the bond somewhat tied to her her, her t- connection to the source? Is the bond tied to connection to, to the source or is the ability to turn it on and off that's what connected I'm saying. to the source? That's, what I, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's a good chicken of the egg question. So, so, so do you need to provide power to the switch in order for the switch to work? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, you know. Um, are, are you oh, looking for an, an actual answer to this? No, just something to hypothesize. Okay. Because I can tell you I don't have an answer to that. It, 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 well. That, that, that's not one that help. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you hey, were saying, Samaria. Thanks for the sour persimmons, cousin. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, like my girlfriend and I fell on opposite sides. So, you know, she was thinking, oh, she can't channel at all. Like she just, you know, the power has been completely removed. I was like, oh, no, she still has it. She just can't access it. Um, and she knows that she can't access it. So, you know, I'm thinking that, like I'm thinking the dark one was like, well, you know, I want to show you how it feels to be me now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, turned it back on her and locked her in. Because I noticed that, like, it looked very similar to how they were imprisoning Loghain. Yes. Right, right. Yes, it, it did. It, it looked very similar to that. shield, yeah. It did. And I, you know, I got the impression that she can't unmax the bond because, you know, she can't channel right now. And if she hadn't maxed the bond, Lon would have known, like, immediately, like, what had happened to her when yeah. he was locking her in. So That's true. So it, it turned out to be a good thing for Lan. Yeah, that would have sucked. Yeah, I, I had a similar feeling, too. And, and I, it may have also been the Avatar influence, you know, going through Avatar right now. But I can tell it wasn't the the Avatar's removal of the powers, but it was those times where somebody couldn't access their bending from something, whether it was done to them or, you know, a chi blockage or a like mental block that they need to power through. And I'm curious to see what it'll be for her. But I, I agree. I don't think her her bending power was completely removed. So. I'm going to go out and say that this is something that did not happen in the books. So I don't know what the answer to this question is, but I am on the same side as, as all of you. Which How does it feel to not know? It's pretty awesome. In, in, in okay, good. 
in, I was gonna in, say in, in all reality. It, it, it's actually really awesome to be enjoying Wheel of Time and and not knowing exactly what's going to happen next. It, it, I have not had this feeling in in but about a decade now. That's and neat. so That's neat, which is awesome. It, it is awesome. I absolutely love it. A lot of the, a lot of the book readers are complaining about the changes. I'm like, no, bring on the changes. Like I, I yeah. want to see something different. This is amazing. But uh, yeah, I, I came down on the same thing that you guys all came down on, which is that she's blocked, but you know, she's shielded, but not stilled. Um, and a lot of the book readers seem to think that she's stilled for some reason. I, I don't buy into it. So um getting back to our our recap uh we're back in tarwin's gap uh, with Egwene and nynaeve and Egwene uses the power of undo i guess <laughs> <laughs> now one thing i noticed power of it the seemed, heart yeah, yeah it seemed to either come from her heart or from the uh the gem that moraine had given her oh i noticed that too it seemed to be coming from the necklace to me yeah, it's like one of the two. It wasn't really clear as to what it was, but it, it was one of those. It was either coming from directly from her heart or from that uh, that necklace that was in what the if, general vicinity. What if the gem is like one of those items that she can channel into and then empowers her further to channel then into this? And she doesn't even know she's doing it through her, the gem. Uh-huh. So what's that second level? The the Angriel, is that right? Or the Tangriel. Ang- Angriel, Saw Angriel, and Tur Angriel. Okay. So the Saar, it would be like a Saar Angriel, possibly. Well, yeah, but yeah, you know, the first time we see them in a scene together, Moraine and Egwene, um, when, you know, Moraine is giving her that midnight lesson, she uses the gem to, like, first have Egwene channel, like, through something, you know, introduce her to the one power. So, like, I thought it was the gem and kind of a callback to that mm-hmm. and not coming strictly from Egwene herself. Yeah. And if Egwene does wind up the White Tower, would that gem be the one that shows up in her ring? No. Oh. Mm-hmm. There's a thought. Mm. Although the gems tend to go with what uh, group she chooses. So depending on does she choose blue? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could be. So back on our timeline, uh, we see Rand heading out across the Blight, and he is sure enough heading just straight into the heart of the Blight. That's just Blight as far as the eye can see. Um, and then we see uh, Land and Moraine back at the Eye of the World, and uh, Moraine picks up some of that shattered rock from that seal that was underneath where they were standing, and she says, uh, it's Quendiar. And Lan is pretty much like, well, that's mildly concerning. Um did you pick up what she was saying about what Quendiar or what Lan was saying about what Quendiar was? I was I was interested about that. It's sort of like whenever, you know, sometimes when lightning strikes sand, it creates sort of a glass. And mm. uh you know, there's something that, that had immense power that went through that. And if the rock had some sort of some sort of mystical properties or mystical meaning, yeah. uh what has just gone through it has transformed it in a similar fashion. So uh, I had more of a geode feel from it. Hmm. That thing that they were all standing on, what he was calling the eye of the world cracked when the spell went off. And that's why I keep going back and forth on whether or not he possibly just opened something, broke a seal. And you're seeing that inside of that thing that cracked was this stuff. Hmm. Could be, could be. 
So yeah, uh, just a little bit of background on Quendiar. Um, Quendiar, it's a word from the old tongue. It means heartstone. Um, and the means to make Quendiar is, is lost to time. It's all of the items of Quendiar that we have are, are left from the age of legends. Um, it was made using the one power in some way that we don't know how. Um, and Quendiar is indestructible, like literally 100% indestructible. You can, you know, throw it through lava and it doesn't do anything to it. You can hit it with the one power. It doesn't do anything through it. You can launch it through the heart of the sun and nothing would happen to it. Quendiar is unbreakable in any conceivable way whatsoever. Once it's made, it cannot be unmade. So that's why it's a little bit concerning that this Quendiar seal is broken. Okay, so that it was broken, but not Quindiar was formed through what happened. No, it, okay. it was already made of Quindiar. Okay. Yeah, that's where I get the idea of the seal, and this was the breaking of a seal, and I think that's what he wanted him to do, is break this seal. Like, oh, you're going to come at me, which leads to this more theory of it possibly being a Shamael rather than the Dark One, even more so. Who knows? Yeah. Or the... Maybe the uh, the the prison, the cell that the Dark One was in was made of Quindiar. Oh. So that just shows that he's loose. Yeah. So uh, we get to our final scene, um, and it says far western shore. We're suddenly way, way, way to the west, and uh, we see a little girl on the beach, and then we see some very interesting boats show up with some very interesting looking people on them. And I'm just going to hear your thoughts at this point. Um, I was wilding out. Oh, shit. <laughs> like, what is this? Who are they? Why Why are you tsunamiing a beach? Also, I knew it was going to be a tsunami because I saw those birds and I was like, baby girl, you got you to get out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just yeah. fascinated. Like, okay, is this an invasion? Is this like, are you, are you home? I don't, I don't think you're home, but may, maybe you could be. Um, Returning from exile in force. Yes. Uh, I, oh, I had a lot of questions and I was like, I need season two, episode one today. <laughs> I feel I like we know where all thoughts. those ships went to. That's what I was saying. And first foremost, I don't think those are the ships that went missing. I think those are why those ships went missing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they came across these. Well. We heard about the one that had to go out and check on all the, the ships that were going missing. And I'm like, okay, this is the explanation what happened. But then my immediately following thought as I watched the wave head to a shore on which there was one little girl is how powerful is that one little girl? <laughs> <laughs> but they had to use a tsunami to take her out. She is the dragon reborn. Oh. I love the costuming. Yeah. Yes, the costume is yeah. amazing. The, the the women with the, the tattooed faces, and then the ones who seem to be actually channeling had these like gold mm. pacifier looking things. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. It gave and, me and the feel that the channelers were more slaves than than um, equals or leaders. I got that feeling too. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't get that, but I can see that for sure. Not allowed well, to talk. I, it looked like feeling. an hierarchy, at least. Like yeah. there are some channelers who, well, because they got to speak, who were yeah. in charge, and then the ones in the background, like they were grunts. I, I just got that that vibe. Yeah. 
Mm. So do you have any questions? Yes, who are they? Seven. All of the questions. Yes, we don't necessarily <laughs> want the answers right now. Several, several questions. Um, um, I'm trying to decide how much information to give you here. We know you're not going to answer, which is why we're not asking the questions. We know you too well. um, We too can learn. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I I, I think I will answer some questions for you here. Um, First of all, these people, they're called the Sean Chan. That is their name, the Sean Chan. That is spelled S-E-A-N-C-H-A-N. So like... Irish and Chinese, Sean Chan. Okay. Got it. And I wasn't going to give you much more beyond that, except the, you already clued in on something else, which is, yes, those channelers were enslaved. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And and that's all I'm going to tell you about the Sean Chan. So we, we know that there is a war that is already going on, completely apart from the war the in the South. The dragon yeah. and... and the dark one and everything. Are these people related to that conflict? Because that's a war in the south, and this is the western shore. So, there is a front I, I opening s- up? I would say no. That that it's not related to that war. That war was actually entirely around Loghain. When Loghain was captured, that war dissipated. Gotcha. Essentially, what kind of people can enslave in a channeler that can channel on that level, and how? Yeah, that's... now that's scary because that means your level of channeling is even better. Well, right. here's something to put forward. If if the Aes Sedai are in here and they're helping to maintain the men from getting access to because of the madness, what about places where there aren't the Aes Sedai and men who are getting access to the source and nothing necessarily keeping their madness in check? Get the world of Mad Max because you know those ships gave me that vibe. Yeah, yeah, Ooh, yeah. A little bit. Ooh, yeah. I didn't see a doof, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw one. <laughs> no electric guitar shooting flames yet, but I'm just, yeah. that might be the beginning That's, of the episode. You don't want to throw that out. Too yeah, soon. we had to wait till the fourth sequel to see that in Mad Max. So you yeah, know, we'd at least wait till episode two of season two. <laughs> okay, so uh, do we have any any final questions or lost thoughts from that episode that you didn't have a, a, a place to fit in anywhere else? Yeah, that one thing I didn't get on that was this one seemed it did seem a little rushed in terms of getting through the narrative. Um, I it just had that feeling about it, like they were trying to stuff so much in, which, you know, kind of typical for a for a season finale. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't disappointing by any means. I mean, it was it was it was a satisfying episode, but it did feel like they were trying to jam a lot in. And you're you're telling me about what happened with Matt or the actor that played Matt with Barney. Uh, yeah. Oh, what What's his name? Uh, w- did did actually answer a, little, a few questions that I had. Yeah. You know, just to leave such a big a big thing hanging. And well, now we know yeah. the real world intervened. And I would say that this episode, is, as well as the episode previous to it, were the first episodes they filmed after COVID lockdowns had finally been lifted after that first year. And, and you know, they, they were still trying to figure out exactly how to even film with all these COVID restrictions in place. So, I, you know, I, I think any of the 
the this filmmaking feels a little bit strange of these last two episodes can pretty much be chalked up to that. Yeah, it's got a it's got a transitional feel, that's for sure. I, were there supposed to be more than eight episodes in this season originally? No, it, it was always supposed to be an eight episode okay. season. All right. Yeah. It explains where Rand's sudden mutton chops came from. It was the passage of time, but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were in that blight for a while. <laughs> So I also noticed that um, in the initial scene we have with Luz Theron, he has kind of a ring that he wears that he wears around three fingers. Um, and then I noticed that the dark one also has the exact same ring. So I was kind of wondering if that might be the men's version of the Aes Sedai ring or if that might be something that the Dark One took from Luz Theron and was a magical object. But I kind of found that interesting. Yeah, it's sort hmm. of like a cross between brass knuckles and a Doctor Strange sling ring kind of thing. Yeah, I could see that. One of the things I found interesting was when he was talking to him about how, oh, you still think Tam's your father. You fool. Tam couldn't be your father. We know who Rand's mother is, but we have not seen Rand's father. That's true. And that leads me to the, the fact that he focused in on the father and Tam is not the father kind of leads me to believe that the father is going to actually be somebody of significance. And we've, yep. we've like I, probably another one of that race, but I think that there's going to be something massive behind Rand's lineage. Everybody's a noble or a wizard. You are not the father. <laughs> I did. I was kind of waiting for a moment for him to say, I'm your father, or something along those lines. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't go that route. Tam never told you what happened to your father, did he? <laughs> okay, so wrapping up uh, all the episode discussion, let's move on to mailbag. Mailbag, we've got more mail. Mailbag. Yeah. Uh, first meal is. mailbag. Yes. Our first one here is coming from uh, uh, G. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's how, how it's pronounced. It's uh, G-I-E. I'm just going to go G-G. Um, hope everyone is well. I just want to say how I enjoy listening to you guys. Also, how all of you in, are in sync with each other and how lovely you all sound. Uh, if we sound in sync, that's because Jordan is doing his job because we are very much not in sync. <laughs> Yay, Jordan. <laughs> no, we're not wow. even actually Thank you, Jordan. Jordan. Uh, I enjoy listening to every episode after watching the episode of the show and we'll start also start reading the book. Uh, you guys actually made me enjoy listening to podcasts again. I actually recommend this podcast to people who said that they also watched the series or read the book. Also, please tell Samaria that whoever her girl is, she's very lucky. Aww. Aww. <laughs> uh, and she just says, thanks for making me love listening to podcasts again. So uh, yeah, we thank you for listening and thank you for getting the word out. Thank you, G. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, And then we also got uh, greetings from India. Um, This is uh, Chandra from India. Says, I love listening to your podcast. Reminds me of simpler times when I had a lot of friends with whom I used to discuss Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to listen to you, friends. And I'm very appreciative of Ruark, who does a very fine job of balancing between not spoiling the book and giving good information, which will help us understand the series. Um, I'm a non-reader and additional info is awesome. I also really love the camaraderie with which you all discuss. The laughs are very genuine and easy, which is the best kind. Yes. 
Um, I have one question. What is your thought on the inclusivity of casting? I think this is the first series that has done casting of different ethnicity and different sexual orientation very naturally. It doesn't seem forced. Major characters are from different backgrounds, and, and Egwene is not your typical beauty, but very naturally so. Um, I can't re recollect other series which does such a natural job. Um, so what do you think of, uh, of the inclusivity? I agree, Chandra. Definitely awesome. one of the things that drew me to the series in the first place. Even even yes. just in the trailer, you see, you know, people from all different backgrounds with speaking parts. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrific. It's funny because I just read this book where the author made a point of having characters, both main and secondary and background, of all you know, all different backgrounds and sexualities. And my main criticism of this was that it did feel forced. And I didn't like, well, I didn't like that book at all. But that was one of my main gripes about it, where especially this current generation of romance writers, where they, you know, I guess they want to write something that they didn't grow up with. Like, I was very big into Harlequins and Nora Roberts, and they're just very white. And so I guess if you grow up with that and you want romance and you want it to look like you, then, or, you know, reflect how your own friend groups look, you're going, obviously you're going to write them in, but it rarely feels natural. Like this is, you know, this, it just is, it's not something that, you know, you actively sought out. And Wheel of Time, I noticed from the get-go, was the opposite of that. And it took me a minute to clue into it because it was so natural. Like, I didn't blink that Egwene is played by an Indigenous Australian actor. I didn't, you know, necessarily go, oh, Perrin, you know, that's an actor who has locks. And, you know, it's just really good to see, you know, a, an actor in the show, a fantasy show that looks like the guys I grew up with. Like, I think it was I was on episode four before I was like, oh, wait, there, there's a lot. And the reason why I, it took me that long is because I noticed a hijabi um, mm -hmm. actress. Yeah, and I was like, I, I, I wonder, that. I yeah. <laughs> like, it wasn't necessarily like, why would a hijabi be in this world? It was like, I wonder what in this world would make a woman, you know, cover her hair. And right. so like it and it yeah. like I just I just really basked in that feeling of being able to watch something and not felt like I was being pandered to. Yeah, I did. I did notice the uh, the actress with the hijabi also, and it was it was like, wow, is there is there Islam in this? You know, uh, it, it, it did it did kind of take me out for a second, but then it was also, yes, this is inclusive. How many? Yeah, how many? You know, people who are in a cultural uh, experience that is different from what you typically see on screen are watching this, and they see the representation. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. And just to have it occur naturalistically, not be sort of forced in or shoehorned yeah. in. You know, I wouldn't say this is the first one that's done that. You know, I I I have to go back to Battlestar Galactica. That's the first one I remember that really, you know, sort of had that inclusion. But you could also go back to Star Trek the Next Generation. Star Trek Forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's there, there's always been a not always, but there has been uh, an effort made, and it, it's really great that I think I think it's great when people can see themselves. It's always great yeah. when people can see themselves. 
Well, and part of what makes it so effortless, I've mentioned this before, is they match the clothing design and the speech patterns and all of that stuff to the nationality of the actor. Mm-hmm. And so you don't see that thing that takes you out of the moment because they're so naturally integrated into the entirety of the series. But they also do a beautiful job of taking, uh, you know, creating kind of melting pots. In other words, like Two Rivers, everybody there is in similar clothing. Everybody there is of a similar culture. Yet you see multiple different skin tones, multiple different, you know, where they are and the environment around them that has created their culture is mm-hmm. more obvious. And then even when you see the travelers, um, the, the uh, I, I can't remember their, their uh, name. Uh- the twelfth one. Um, when you see them, there's a mixture of people within them, and they have a culture that seems to have been an embrace of the cultures they've come. But they even talk about the prejudices and seeing that the prejudices that have hit that whole group just because they're part of that group that isn't based in in you know skin color or or religion or that kind of stuff. It's it's showing that there still is a similar type of like there's some some of the same problems. That we have with mm-hmm. ours, but they've don't they don't have the same problems, and right. that they that the the inclusiveness in casting helps. I feel like paint a world that we could achieve of getting past skin color being something that makes you treat somebody differently. Or you know mm-hmm. may, maybe that's you know it, it, maybe it's a little optimistic of me, but like like that gave me a little more hope that that's something because it felt so natural to watch. Maybe somebody out there will watch this and see how it feels natural. Yeah, that yeah. and that that harkens back to to Star Trek, which I'm sure would put a smile on David's face. There, uh, <laughs> that that's something that Roddenberry wanted to do uh, when he created it. He wanted it to not be just the same, you know, white men on a ship. It, it there's there's lots of different nationalities and even species. You know, different different worlds are represented, and it. It, it's a sort of utopian vision, but it's entirely achievable and entirely plausible. And uh, yeah, it just seems to fit the world because it's what our world looks like. Yeah. Um, and Chandra, uh, that's right. We're still in the middle of a letter from Chandra here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chandra. Good uh, Chandra, yeah. Chandra uh, goes on to say, uh, and then another point I want to discuss and asks about uh, Maureen losing her power. And uh, is this something from the books, which we covered in the episode? Uh, no, I, I have no idea what's going to happen there. And I'm looking forward to finding out. Um, Chandra says, once again, thanks for the content. I'm very sad that the wheel of time has ended for the season and not sure when the new season will start, but we'll definitely listen to us when it starts again. Thanks a lot. And cheers from India. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you very much. We're not necessarily going away while the show's away. I I was going to say, stick around. We're going to keep doing some stuff in the off season. Uh, Starting next week, we're going to uh, do a, just kind of an overview of the season as a whole. Just kind of go back and do a greatest hits and, and, and really get into the, to discussing some things that we want to discuss on, on a meaty level. Then we'll uh, we'll continue to do some more episodes after that uh, for a while into the off season. So so we're not going anywhere just yet. We also have the uh, last four episodes of the uh, Origins series. That is true. Though. Well, we'll at least those the last out as two. Well. Yeah, there are only two more, but I figured we can do the last two episodes of that, and then uh, kind of lump in all of the rest of the the bonus content as well. 
Um, so I think uh, we can call this an episode. It's uh, our longest episode yet, almost two and a half hours. Ooh, it's a movie. We are talking a few yes. credits. Uh, so if you want to get your, your uh, message into Mailbag, uh, you can send that to WatchPartyWOT at Gmail. That's WatchPartyWOT at Gmail.com. Uh, as usual, we want to say thank you to Michael and Jen uh, from Watch Party Productions. Uh, they helped get this whole thing running and put this thing all together. So, uh, Michael and Jen, we love you. We really, really do. Thank yes, you, Michael and Jen. Thank everything. you. Vibes out uh, to the secret island. Uh, huge, huge thanks to Jordan Rennells. As we've said many, many times, we don't sound this good. Jordan makes us sound this good. Yes, this is true. Yeah, buddy. Jordan has it down. And uh, final word from the panel. Who are you most excited to see next season? Better show me more of Uno. Oh, yes. Yes. Uno needs to just he he needs he needs to be the uh he he just needs to be that 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 character that they just bring out. He can't just stay in he can't just stay in the in in, in far along. He, he needs to he needs to be there. Yeah. He needs he needs to come out on the road with the guys. Got to see that guy in battle. Really reminds me of uh, who's the cell sword from uh, from Game of Thrones. Uh, the guy who oh uh, Bron Bron yes yeah. yes he needs to be a Bron in this show. I'm really looking forward to finding out more about those women on the boats. They they mm-hmm. fascinate me. Yes. Yeah, there there's something big going on there, and I want to know. I want to know who sent them. Yeah. Mm. Well, I guess we'll find out at the beginning of next season, won't we? Yes, we also need a little bit more of the Glee Man. (laughs) Oh, yes. More Tom, more Tom. Tom, 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 Tom. I can't wait to see my girl Swan again. And I feel like Maureen should go back to the White Tower so Swan can sexily nurse her back to hell. I I feel like that would be great. Sexual oh, healing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>